0: Hello everybody, Sukrearo here, and you're once again listening to the Year of Blank Year of Stories podcast. Last episode ended pretty abruptly because I realized we were over two hours, but now, I was like, huh. I wonder if there are, like, super long podcasts on here that could give me, like, a probable length margin. There are some eight-hour-long podcasts where it's just, like, the focus music, like, focus music for studying or meditation or whatever the fuck. Eh, said it before, but I'll just jump right back in because I have to read 115 pages for makeup and then another 86 for advanced recording for Saturday's episode this week. So we're just going right where we left off. Kate has spent too much time out of organized school to find a group she fits into. Most of my friend, most of the friends she has made during her long stretch of remission have disappeared, a mutual thing. It turned out to be too hard for an average kid to know how to act around someone on the verge of dying, and it was equally as difficult for Kate to get honestly excited about things like homecoming and SATs when there was no guarantee she'd be around to experience them. She's got a few acquaintances, sure, but mostly when they come over, they look like they're counting out a sentence. And sit on the edge of Kate's bed, counting down the minutes until they can leave, and thank God this didn't happen to them. A real friend is incapable of feeling sorry for you. I'm not your friend, I say, yanking the curtain back into place. I'm your sister, and doing a damn lazy, lousy job at that, I think. I push my face into the shower spray so that she cannot tell I'm crying, too. Suddenly, the curtain whips aside, leaving me totally bare. That's what I wanted to talk about, Kate says. If you don't want to be my sister anymore, that's one thing, but I don't think I could stand to lose you as a friend. She pulls the curtain back into place, and the steam rises around me. A moment later, I hear the- I hear the door open and close, and the nice slice of cold air that comes on its heels. I can't stand the thought of losing her, either. That night, once Kate falls asleep, I crawl out of my bed and stand beside hers. When I hold my palm under up under her nose to see if she's breathing, a mouthful of air presses against my hand. I could push down, now, over that nose and mouth, hold her when she fights— how would that really be any different than what I am already doing? The sound of footsteps in the hall- in the hallway has me diving underneath the cave of my covers. I turn onto my side, away from the door, just in case my eyelids are still flickering by the time my parents enter the room. I can't believe this, my mother whispers. I just can't believe she's done this. My father is so quiet that I wonder if maybe I have been mistaken, if maybe he he isn't here at all. This is Jessie all over again, my mother adds. She's doing it for the attention. I can feel her looking down at me, like I'm some kind of creature she's never seen before. Maybe we need to take her somewhere, alone. Go to a movie or shopping so she doesn't feel left out. Make her see that she doesn't have to do something crazy to get us to notice her. What do you think? My father takes his time, answering. Well, he says quietly, maybe this isn't crazy. You know how silence can push in at your eardrums in the dark, make you deaf? That's what happens, so that that I almost miss my mother's answer. For God's sake, Brian, whose side are you on? And my father... Who said there were sides? But even I could answer that for him. There are always sides. There is always a winner and a loser. For every person who gets, there's someone who must give. A few seconds later, the door closes, and the whole light that has been dancing on the ceiling disappears. Blinking, I roll onto my back and find my mother still standing beside my bed. I thought you were gone, I whisper. She sits down on the foot of my bed, and I inch away, but she puts her hand on my calf before I move too far. What else do you think, Anna? My stomach squeezes tight. I think... I think you must hate me. Even in the dark, I can see the shine of her eyes. Oh, Anna, my mother sighs. How can you not know how much I love you? She holds out her arms and I crawl into them, as if I'm small again and I fit there. I press my voice hard into her shoulder. What I want, more than anything, is to turn back time a little. To become the kid I used to be, who believed whatever my mother said was 100% true and right, without looking hard enough to see the hairline cracks. My mother holds me tighter. We'll talk to the judge and explain it. We can fix this, she says. We can fix everything, and because those words are really all I've ever wanted to hear, I nod. Sarah, 1990. There is an unexpected comfort to being at the onco- at the oncology wing at, of the hospital, a sense that I am a member of the club, from the kind heart... I, for- I completely forget the voice I did for the mom. From the kind-hearted parking attendant who asks us if it's our first time, to the legions of children with pink em- emesis basins tucked beneath their arms like teddy bears, this peep- these people have all been here before us, and their safety in numbers. We take the elevator to the third floor to the do- to the office of Doctor Harrison Chance. His name alone has put me off. Why not Doctor Victor? He's late. I say to Brian, as I check my watch for the 20th time. A spider plant languishes brown on a windowsill. I hope he is better with people. To amuse Kate, who was starting to lose it, I inflate a rubber glove and knot it into a coxcomb balloon. On the glove dispenser near the sink is a prominent sign warning parents not to do this very thing. We bat it back and forth, playing volleyball, until Dr. Chance himself comes in without a single apology for his delay. Mr. and Mrs. Fitzgerald, he is tall and real thin, with snapping blue eyes, magnified by thick glasses, and a tightly set mouth. He catches Kate's makeshift balloon in one hand and frowns in it, at it. Well, I can see there's already a problem. Brian and I exchange a glance. Is this cold-hearted man the one who will lead us through this war? Our general, our white knight... Before we even make, we can even, back, even backpedal with explanations, Dr. Chance takes a sharpie marker and draws a face on the latex, complete with a set of wire-rimmed glasses to match his own. There, he says, and, a, and with a smile that changes him, he hands it back to Kate. I only see my sister Suzanne once or twice a year. She lives less than an hour... Than an hour and several thousand philosophical convictions away. "'As far as I can tell, "'Suzanne gets paid a lot of money to boss people around, "'which means, theoretically, "'that she did her career training with me. "'Our father died while mowing the lawn on his 49th birthday. "'Our mother never quite sewed herself together in the aftermath.' Suzanne, 10 years my senior, took up the slack. She made sure I did my homework and filled out law school applications and dreamed big. She was smart and beautiful and always knew what to say at any given moment. She could take any catastrophe and find a logical antidote to cure it, which is what made her such a success at her job. She was just as comfortable in the boardroom as she was jogging along with the Charles. She made it all look easy. Who wouldn't want a role model like that? Why is the dog barking? Ew, what's the dog doing? My first strike was marrying a guy without a college degree. My second and third were getting pregnant. I suppose that when I didn't go on to become the next Gloria Alfre... Alred, She was justified in counting me a failure, and I suppose that until now I was justified in thinking that I wasn't one. Don't get me wrong, she loves her niece and nephew. She sends them carvings from Africa, shells from Bali, chocolates from Switzerland. Jesse wants a glass office like hers when he grows up. We can't all be Aunt Zan, I tell him, When the- when what I mean is that I can't be her. I don't remember which of us stopped returning phone calls first, but it was easier that way. There's nothing worse than silence strung like heavy beads on too delicate a conversation, so it takes me a full week before I pick up the phone. I dial direct. Suzanne Crofton's line, a man says. Yes, I hesitate. Is she available? She's in a meeting. Please. I take a deep breath. Please tell her it's her sister calling a moment later that smooth cool voice falls into my ear sarah it's been a while she is the person i ran to when i got my period the one who helped me knit back together my first broken heart the hand i would reach for in the middle of the night when i could no longer remember which side our father parted his hair on or what it sounded like when our mother laughed no matter what she is now, before all that, she was my built in best friend. Zand, I say, how are you? Thirty six hours after Kate is officially diagnosed with APL, Brian and I are given an opportunity to ask questions. Kate messes with glitter glue with a child life specialist while we meet with a team of doctors, nurses, and psychiatrists. The nurses, I have already learned, are the ones who give us the answers we're desperate for. Unlike the doctors who fidget like they need to be somewhere else, the nurses patiently answer us as if we are the first set of parents to ever have this kind of meeting with them instead of the thousand the thing about leukemia, one nurse explains, is that we haven't even inserted a needle for the first treatment when we're already thinking three treatments down the line. This particular illness carries a pretty poor prognosis, so we need to be thinking ahead to what happens next. What makes APL a little trickier is that it's a chemo-resistant disease. What's that? Ryan asks. Normally, with myelogia... Myelogenous. Myelogenous leukemias. As long as the organs hold up, you can potentially reinduce the patient into remission every time there's a relapse. You're exhausting their body, but you know it will respond to treatment over and over. However, with APL, once you've offered a given therapy, you usually can't rely upon it again. And to date, there's only so much we can do. Are you saying, Brian swallows, are you saying she's going to die? I'm saying there are no guarantees. So... Is this Brian? So what do you do? A different nurse answers. I went like high like an anime voice dub for that last nurse. Can I not do that? Kate will start a week of chemotherapy in the hopes that we can kill off the diseased cells and put her into remission. She'll most likely have nausea and vomiting, which we'll try to keep to a minimum with anti with antiemetics. She'll lose her hair. At this, a tiny cry escapes from me. This is such a small thing, and yet it's the banner that will let others know what's wrong with Kate. Only six months ago, she had her first haircut. The gold ringlets curled like coins on the floor of the supercuts. She may develop diarrhea. There's a very good chance that, with her own immune system laid low, she will get an infection that will require hospitalization. Chemo may cause developmental delays as well. She'll have a course of consolidation chemotherapy about two weeks after that, and then a few courses of maintenance therapy. The exact number will depend on the results we get from the, from periodic bone marrow aspirations. Then what? Brian asks. Then we watch her. Dr. Chance replies, with APL, you'll want to be vigilant for signs of relapse. She'll have to come into the ER... If she has any hemorrhaging, fever, cough, or infection. And as far as further treatment, she'll have some options. The idea is to get Kate's body producing healthy bone marrow. In the unlikely event that we achieve molecular remission with chemo, we can retrieve Kate's own cells and reinstill them. An autologous harvest. If she relapses, we may try to transplant someone else's marrow into Kate to produce blood cells. Does Kate have any siblings? A brother, I say. A thought dawns a horrible one. Could he have this, too? It's very unlikely, but he may wind up being a match for an allergenic transplant. Genaic? Eh. If not, we'll put Kate on the National Registry for MUD, a matched, unrelated donor. However, getting a transplant from a stranger who's a match is much more dangerous than getting one from a relative. The risk of mortality greatly increases. The information is endless, a series of darts thrown so fast I cannot feel them sting anymore. We are told, do not think, just give your child up to us, because otherwise she's going to die. For every answer they give us, we have another question. Will her hair grow back? Will she ever go to school? Can she play with friends? Did this happen because of where we live? Did this happen because of who we are? What will it be like, I hear myself ask, if she dies? Dr. Chance looks at me. It depends on what she succumbs to, he explains. If it's infection, she'll be in respiratory distress and on a ventilator. If it's hemorrhage, she'll, be- she'll bleed out after losing consciousness. If it's organ failure, their characteristics will vary depending on the system in distress. Often there's a combination of all of these. Will she know what's happening? I ask when what I really mean is how will I survive this? Mrs. Fitzgerald, he says, as if he has heard my unspoken question. Of the 20 children here today, 10 will be dead in a few years. I don't know which group Kate will be in. To save Kate's life, part of her has to die. That's the purpose of chemotherapy, to wipe out all the leukemic cells. To this end, a central line has been placed beneath Kate's collarbone, a three-pronged port that will be the entry point for multiple medication administrations, IV fluids, and blood draws. I look at the tube sprouting from her thin chest and think of science fiction movies. She has already had a base... She has already had a baseline EKG to make sure her heart can withstand chemo. She's had dexamethasone, ophthalmic drops because of one of because one of the drugs causes conjunctivitis. She has blood drawn from her central line to test for renal and liver function. The nurse hangs the infusion bags on the IV pole and smooths Kate's hair. Will she feel it? I ask. Nope. Hey, Kate, look here. She points to the bag of Donorubicin? Donorubicin? Donorob- Donorubison. D-A-U-N-O-R-U-B-I-C-I-N. I don't know how it's pronounced. I... <laughs> Covered with a dark bag to protect it from light. Spawning in our brightly colored stickers she's helped Kate make while we were waiting. I saw one teenager with a post-it note on his. Jesus saves. Chemo scores. This is what starts coursing through her veins. The Donorubicin 50 milligrams and 25 cc's of D5W. Cytorobin... Cytarabine, forty-six milligrams in a D five eight infusion, a continuous twenty-four IV, allopurinol, allopurinol, A L L O P U R I N O L, ninety-two milligrams IV. Or in other words, poison. I imagine a great battle going on inside her. I picture shining armies, casualties that evaporate through her pores. They tell us Kate will most likely get sick within a few days, but it only but it takes only two hours before she starts throwing up. Brian pushes the call button and a nurse comes into the room. We'll get her some raglin. She says, and she disappears. When Kate isn't vomiting, she's crying. I sit on the edge of the bed, holding her half on my lap. The nurses do not have time to... S- to nurse short staff they administer antiemetics in the iv they stay for a few moments to see how kate responds but inevitably they are called elsewhere to another emergency and the rest falls to us brian who has to leave the room if one of our children gets a stomach virus is a model of efficiency wiping her forehead holding her thin shoulders dabbing tissues around her mouth You can get through this, he murmurs to her each time she spits up, but he may only be talking to himself. And I, too, am surprising myself. With grim resolve, I make a ballet out of rinsing the Mesa's basin and bringing it back. If you focus on sandbagging the beachhead, you can ignore the tsunami that's approaching. Try it any other way, and you'll go crazy. Brian brings Jesse to the hospital for his blood test. A simple finger stick. He needs to be restrained by Brian and two male residents. He screams down the hospital. I stand back and cross my arms and inadvertently think of Kate, who stopped crying over procedures two days ago. Some doctor will look at this sample of blood and will be able to analyze six proteins, floating invisibly. If these six proteins are the same as Kate's, then Jesse will be an HLA match, a potential donor for bone marrow for his sister. How bad can the odds be, I think, to match six times over, as bad as getting leukemia in the first place? The phlebotomist goes off with her blood sample, and Brian and the doctors release Jesse. He bolts off the table into my arms. Mom, they stuck me. He holds up his finger, festooned with a Raugradz band-aid. His damp, bright face is hot against my skin. I hold him close. I say all the right things, but it is so, so hard to make myself feel sorry for him. Unfortunately... Dr. Chance says, your son isn't a match. My eyes focus on the house plant, which, sit, which still sits withered and brown on the sill. Someone ought to get rid of that thing. Someone ought to replace it with orchids, with, br- with birds of paradise, and other unlikely blooms. It's possible that an unrelated donor will crop up on the National Marrow Registry. Brian leans forward stiff and tense but you said a transplant from an unrelated donor was dangerous. Yes, I did, Dr. Chan says, but sometimes it's all we've got. I glance up. What if you can't find a match in the registry? Well, the oncologist rubs his forehead. Then we try to keep her going until research catches up to her. He's talking about my little girl as if she were some kind of machine—a car with a faulty carburetor, a plane whose landing gear is stuck. Rather than face this, I turn away just in time to see one of them is. Misbegotten leaves on the plant make its suicide plunge to the carpet. Without an explanation, I get to my feet and pick up the planter. I walk out of Dr. Chance's office, past the receptionist and the other shell-shocked parents waiting with their sick children. The first trash receptacle I find, I dump the plant in all its desiccated soil. I stare at the terracotta pot in my hand, and I am just thinking about smashing it down on the tiled floor when I hear a voice behind me. "'Sarah,' Dr. Chance says, "'You all right?' I turn around slowly, tears springing to my eyes. "'I'm fine. I'm healthy. I'm going to live a long, long life.' Handing him the planter, I apologize. He nods and offers me a handkerchief from his own pocket. "'I thought it might be Jessie who could save her. "'I wanted it to be Jessie.' We all did, Dr. Chance answers. Listen, 20 years ago, the survival rate was even smaller, and I've known lots of families where one sibling isn't a match, but another sibling turns out to be just right. We only have those two, I start to say, and then I realize that Dr. Chance is talking about a family I haven't yet had, of children I never intended. I turn to him, a question on my lips... Brian will wonder where we've gone. He starts to walk toward his office, holding up the plot the pot. What plants? he asks conversationally, would I be least likely to kill? It is so easy to presume that while your own world has ground to an absolute halt, so has everyone else's. But the trash collector has taken our garbage and left the cans in the road, just like always. There's a bill from the oil truck tucked into the front door. Neatly stacked on the counter is a week's worth of mail. Amazingly, life has gone on. Kate is released from the hospital a full week after her admission for induction chemotherapy. The central line still snaking from her chest bells out under her blouse. The nurses give me a pep talk for encouragement and a long list of instructions to follow. When to and when not to call the emergency room. When we we are expected back for more chemotherapy. How to be careful during Kate's period of uh, immunosuppression. At six the next morning, the door to our bedroom opens. Kate tiptoes toward the bed, although Brian and I have come awake in an instant. What is it, honey? Brian asks. She doesn't speak, just lifts her hand to her head and threads her finger fingers through her scalp, through her hair. It comes out in a thick clump, drifts down to the carpet like a small blizzard. All done. Kate announces a few nights later at dinner, her plate is still full. She hasn't touched her beans or her meatloaf. She dances off to the living room to play. Me too. Jesse pushes back from the table. Can I be excused? Brian spears another mouthful with his fork. Not until you finish everything green. I hate fiends. They're not too crazy about you either. Jesse looks at Kate's plate. She gets to be finished. That's not fair. Brian sets his fork down on the side of his plate. Fair? He answers, his voice too quiet. You, you want to be fair? Alright, Jess, the next time Kate has a bone marrow aspiration, we'll let you get one too. When we flush her central line, we'll make sure you go through something equally as painful. The next time she gets chemo, we'll- Brian, I interrupt. He stops as abruptly as he started and passes a shaking hand over his eyes. Then his gaze lands on Jesse, who has taken refuge under my arm. Uh, I'm sorry, Jess, I don't- But whatever he- is about to say vanishes as brian walks out of the room for a long moment we sit in silence then jesse turns to me is dad sick too i think hard before i answer we're all going to be fine i reply On the one-week anniversary of our return home, we are awakened in the middle of the night by a crash. Brian and I race each other to Kate's room. She lies in bed, shaking so hard that she's knocked a lamp off her nightstand. She's burning up, I tell Brian, when I lay my hand against her forehead. I have decided how I will decide. I have wondered how I will decide whether or not to call the doctor or should Kate develop any strange symptoms. I look at her now and cannot believe I would ever be so stupid to believe that I wouldn't know immediately what sick looks like. We're going to the ER, I announce, although Brian is already wrapping Kate's blankets around her and lifting her out of her crib. We bustle her to the car and start the engine and then remember that we cannot leave Jessie home alone. You go with her. Brian answers, reading my mind. I'll stay here. But he doesn't take his eyes off Kate. Minutes later, we are speeding toward the hospital, Jesse in the back seat next to his sister, asking why we need to get up when the sun hasn't. In the ER, Jesse sleeps on a nest of our coats, Ryan and I watch the doctors hover over Kate's feverish body, bees over a field of flowers, drawing what they can from her. She is pan-cultured and given a spinal tap to try to isolate the cause of the infection and rule out meningitis. A radiologist brings in a portable x-ray machine to take a film of her chest to see if this infection lives in her lungs. Afterward, he places the chest film on the light panel outside the door. Kate's ribs seem as thin as matchsticks, and there's a large gray blot just off center. My knees go weak, and I find myself grabbing onto Brian's arm. It's a tumor. The cancer is metastasized. I don't know what that means. Jinxie, do you know medical terms? I think you do. Let me know what that means if you do No. The doctor puts his hand on my shoulder. Mrs. Fitzgerald, he says. That's Kate's heart. Pancytopenia is a fancy word that means there is nothing in Kate's body protecting her against infection. It means, Dr. Chance says, that the chemo worked, that the great majority of white blood cells in Kate's body have been wiped out. It also means that there is sepsis, a post-chemo infection, is not a likelihood but a given. haha I'm on page 6-9 I've made enough jokes on here that it's like I don't care anymore 6-9 there we are She is dosed with Tylenol to reduce her fever. She has blood, urine, and respiratory secretion cultures taken so that the appropriate antibiotics can be administered. It takes six hours before she is free of the rigors, around a violent shaking so fierce that she is in danger of shimmying off the bed. The nurse, a woman who braided Kate's hair in in silky cornrows one afternoon a few weeks back to make her smile, takes Kate's temperature and then turns to me. Sarah, she says gently, you can breathe now. Kate's face looks as tiny and white as those distant moons that Brian likes to spot in his telescope. Still, remote, cold, she looks like a corpse. And even worse, this is a relief compared to watching her suffer. Hey. Ryan touches the crown of my head. He juggles Jesse in his other arm. It is nearly noon, and we are still in pajamas. We never thought to take a change of clothes. I'm gonna take him down to the cafeteria, get some lunch. You want something? I shake my head, scooting my chair closer to Kate's bed. I smooth the covers over her legs. I take... I take, I take her hand and measure it against my own. Her eyes slid open. For a moment, she struggles, unsure of where she is. Kate, I whisper, I'm right here. As she turns her head and focuses on me, I lift her palm to my mouth, press a kiss in its center. You are so brave, I tell her, and then I smile. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. By surprise, Kate shakes her head hard. Her voice is a feather, a thread. No, Mom, she says. You'd be sick. In my first dream, the IV fluid is dripping too quickly into Kate's central line. The saline pumps her. "'Pumps her up from the inside out, a balloon to be inflated. "'I try to pull the infusion, but it's held fast in the central line. "'As I watch Kate's features smooth, the blur obliterate "'until her face is a white oval that could be anyone at all. "'In my second dream, I am in a maternity ward giving birth. "'My body tunnels in, my heart pulses low in my belly. "'There is a rush of pressure, and then the baby arrives "'in a lightning rush and flow.' It's a girl, the nurse beams and she hands me the newborn. Born. I pull the pink blanket from her face. Then stop. This isn't Kate, I say. Of course not, the nurse agrees, but she's still yours. The angel that arrives is wearing Armani and barking into his cell phone as she or as she enters the hospital room. Sell it, my sis No wait, I did her sister's voice smoother, lighter. "'Sell it,' my sister orders. "'I don't care if you have to set up a lemonade stand in Fonwell Hall and give the shares away, Peter. "'I said sell!' "'She pushes a button and holds out her arms to me. "'Hey,' sand smooths when I burst into tears. "'Did you really think I'd listen to you "'when you told me not to come? "'But faxes, phones, I can work from your home. "'Who else is going to watch Jesse?' Brian and I look at each other. We haven't thought that far. In response, Brian stands up, hugs Zan awkwardly. Jessie runs toward her at full tilt. Who's that kid you adopted, Sarah? Because Jessie can't possibly be that big. She disengages Jessie from her knees and leans down over the hospital bed where Kate is sleeping. I bet you don't remember me, Zan says, her eyes bright. But I remember you. It comes so easy, letting her take charge. Zane gets Jesse involved in a game of tic-tac-toe and bullies a Chinese restaurant that doesn't deliver into bringing up lunch. I sit beside Kate, basking in my sister's confidence. I let myself pretend she can fix the things I can't. After Zane takes Jesse home for the night, Brian and I become bookends in the dark bracketing Kate. Brian, I whisper, I've been thinking. He shifts him a seat. What about... I lean forward so that I catch his eye. Having a baby. Brian's eyes narrow. Jesus, Sarah. He gets to his feet, turns his back to me. I stand up too. It's not what you think. When he fi- when he faces me, pain draws every line of his features tight. Why can't just replace Kate if she dies. In the hospital bed, Kate shifts, wrestling the sheets. I force myself to imagine her at age 4, wearing a Halloween costume. Age 12, trying out lip gloss. Age 20, dancing around a dorm room. I know. So we have to make sure she doesn't. <sighs> my throat hurts. The mom, the way I'm voicing her, is like a lot of raw emotion. So I keep my throat tight the whole time, so like... At points, if I add, like, a bit more tightness and warble, it sounds like I'm on the verge of sobbing, like I feel like the mom is. But it hurts, mate. (coughs) Sorry for that cough. Wednesday. Wednesday. I will read ashes for you, if you ask me. I will look in the fire and tell you from the gray lashes and out of the red and black tongues and stripes. I will tell you how fire comes and how fire runs as far as the sea. Carl Sandburg, Fire Pages. Campbell! I got really excited over Campbell. I like Campbell as a character. Ow, my toe. I cut my toe the other day. On accent. But anyway, I love Campbell as a character. Oh my god. If if you end up crying, I'm not gonna feel bad. I completely forget the voice I did for Campbell. I think I like used his generic man voice. That's not what I did for any of the voices. For like other characters. Like, background characters. Why am I putting so much effort into these voices, though? Why do I care so much? I, like, haven't cared before about voices. Maybe it's just how, like, poignant and beautiful this piece of literature is. How it tackles such difficult topics and pulls you directly into it. It like hurts my soul. So, I think I'm gonna like semi give up on voices because it's like hurting my throat. So, like, I hope you enjoyed the voices while they lasted for like 74 pages. Campbell. We are all, I suppose, beholden to our parents. The question is, how much? This is what runs through my mind while my mother jabbers on about my father's latest affair. Not for the first time, I wished for siblings, if only so that I would receive sunrise phone calls like this only once or twice a week, instead of seven. Mother, I interrupt. I doubt that she's actually sixteen. You underestimate your father, Campbell. Campbell? Eh. Maybe, but I also know that he's a federal judge. He may leer after schoolgirls, but he'd never do anything illegal. Mom, I'm late for court. I'll check back in with you later, I say, and I hang up before she can protest. I am not going to court, but still. Taking a deep breath, I shake my head and find Judge staring at me. Reason number 106, why dogs are are smarter than humans, I say. Once you leave the litter, you sever contact with your mother's. I walk into the kitchen as I am nodding my tie. My apartment, it is a work of art, sleek and minimalist, but what is there... But what is there is the best that money can buy. A -a one-of-a-kind black leather couch, a flat-screen television hanging on the wall, a locked glass case filled with signed first editions from authors like Hemingway and Hawthorne. My coffee maker comes imported from Italy. My refrigerator is sub-zero. I open it to find a single onion, a bottle of ketchup, and three rolls of black and white film. This, too, is no surprise. I rarely eat at home. Judge is so used to restaurant food, he wouldn't recognize kibble if it slid its way down his throat. What do you think? I ask him. Rosie sound good? He barks as I fasten his service dog harness. Judge and I have been together for seven years. I bought him from a breeder of police dogs, but he was specially trained with me in mind. As for his name, well, what attorney wouldn't want to be able to put a judge in a crate every now and then? Rosie's is what Starbucks wishes it was Eclectic and funky Crammed with patrons who at any time Might be reading Russian lit in its original tongue Or balancing a company's budget on a laptop Or writing a screenplay while, me- while mainlining caffeine Judge and I usually walk there And sit at our usual table In the back We order a double espresso and two chocolate croissants And we fur- flirt shamelessly with Ophelia The 20-year-old waitress But today... When we walk inside, Ophelia is nowhere to be found, and there is a woman sitting at our table, feeding a to- toddler in a stroller a bagel. This throws me for such a loop that Judge needs to tuck me to the only spot that's free, a stool at a counter that looks out on the street. 7.30 a.m., and already this day is a bust. A heroine thin boy with enough rings in his eyebrows to resemble a shower curtain rod approaches with a pad. He sees Judge at my feet. Sorry, dude, no dogs allowed. This is a service dog, I explain. Where's Ophelia? She's gone, man. Eloped last night. Eloped? People still do that? With whom? I ask. Though it's not of my business. Some performance artist who sculpts dog crap into busts of world leaders. It's supposed to be a statement. I feel the momentary pang for poor Ophelia. Take it from me, love has all the lasting permanence of a rainbow, beautiful while it's there, and just as likely to as disappear by the time you blink. The waiter reaches into his back pocket and hands me a plastic card. I want a double espresso and two croissants, and I'm not blind. Then what's Fido for? I have S.A.R.S., I say. He's telling the people I am infect. The waiter can't seem to figure out if I am joking. He backs away, unsure, to get, my, uh, to get my coffee. Unlike my normal table, this one has a view of the street. I watch an elderly lady narrowly avoid the swipe of a taxi. A boy dances past with a, th- with a radio three times the size of his head balanced on his shoulder. Twins in parochial school uniforms giggle behind the pages of a teen magazine, and a woman with a running river of black hair spills coffee on her skirt, dropping the paper cup on the the pavement. Inside me, everything stops. I wait for her to lift her face, to see if this could possibly be who I think it is. But she turns away from me, blotting the fabric with a napkin. A bus cuts the world in half, and my cell phone begins to ring. I glance down at the incoming number. No surprise there. Turning off the power button without bothering to take my mother's call, I glance back at the woman outside the window. But by then, the bus is gone, and so is she. I open the door of the office, already barking orders for Carrie. Call Osterlitz and ask him whether he's available to testify during the Whiteland trial. Get a list of other com- comp complaint- Complainants? Eh who have gone up against New England power in the past five years, make me a copy of the Melbourne deposition, and phone Jerry at the court and ask who the judge is going to be for the Fitzgerald kid's hearing. She glances up at me as the phone begins to ring. Speaking of, she jerks her head in the direction of the door to my inner sanctum. Anna Fitzgerald stands on the threshold with a spray can of industrial cleaner and a a chamoy cloth, polishing the doorknob. What are you doing? I ask. What you told me to do. What you told me to. She looks down at the judge. At the dog. Jesus Christ. Hey, judge. Line two for you, Carrie interrupts. I give her a measured look. Why she even let this kid in here is beyond me. And try to get into my office. But whatever Anna has put on the hardware makes it too greasy to turn. I struggle for a moment until she grips the knob with the cloth and opens it, and opens the door for me. Judge circles the floor, finding the most comfortable spot. I punch the blinking light on the call row. Campbell Alexander, Mister Alexander, this is Sarah Fitzgerald, Anna Fitzgerald's mother. I let this information settle. I stare at her daughter polishing a mirror five feet away. Mrs. Fitzgerald, I answer, and as expected, Anna stops in her tracks. I'm calling because, well, you see, this is all a misunderstanding. Have you filed a response to the petition? That isn't going to be necessary. I spoke to Anna last night, and she isn't going to continue with her case. She wants to do anything she can to help Kate. Is that so? My voice falls flat. Unfortunately, if my client is planning to call off her lawsuit, I'll need to hear it directly from her. I raise a brow, catch Anna's gaze. You wouldn't happen to know where she is? She went out for a run, Sarah Fitzgerald says, but we're going to come down to the courthouse this afternoon. We'll talk to the judge and get this straightened out. I suppose I'll see you then. I hang up the phone and cross my arms. Look at Anna. Is there something you'd like to tell me? She shrugs. Not really. That's not what your mother seems to think. Then again, she's also under the impression that you're, up- that you're out playing Flojo. Anna glances out into the reception area, where Carrie, naturally, is hanging on the, on our words like a cat on a rope. She closes the door and walks up to my desk. Discord notification. I couldn't tell her I was coming here, not after last night. What happened last night? When Kate goes mute, I lose my patience. Listen, if you're not going to go through with a lawsuit, this is a colossal waste of my time, then I'd appreciate it if you had the honesty to tell me now rather than later. Because I'm not a family therapist or your best buddy. I'm your attorney. And for me to be your attorney, there actually has to be a case. So I will ask you one more time. Have you changed your mind about this lawsuit? I expect this tirade to put an end to the litigation, to reduce Anna to a wavering puddle of indecision, but to my my surprise, she looks right at me, cool and collected. Are you still willing to represent me? she asks. Against my better judgment, I say yes. Then no, she says. I haven't changed my mind. The first time I sailed in a yacht club race with my father, I was 14, 14, and he was dead set against it. I wasn't old enough. I wasn't mature enough. The weather was too iffy. What he really was saying was that having me crew for him was more likely to lose him the cup than to win it. In my father's eyes, if you weren't perfect, you simply weren't. His boat was a USA 1 class, a marvel of mahogany antique, one he'd bought from the keyboard player J, Jay, Jay Gilles, up in Marblehead. In other words, a dream, a status symbol, in a rite of passage, all wrapped up in a gleaming white sail and a honey-colored hull. We hit the start dead on, crossing the line at full sail just as the cannon shot off. I did my best to be a step ahead of where my father needed me to be, guiding the rudder before he even gave the order, jibing and tacking until my muscles burned with effort. And maybe this even would have had a happy ending, but then the storm blew in from the north, bringing sheets of rain and swells that stretched ten feet high, pitching us from height to gully. I watched my father move in his yellow slicker. He didn't seem to notice it was raining. He certainly didn't want to crawl into a hole and clutch his sick stomach and die, like I did. Campbell, he bellowed, come about. But to turn in the wind meant to ride another roller coaster up and down. Campbell, my father repeated, now. A A trough opened up in front of us. The boat dipped so sharply I lost my footing. My father lunged past me, grabbing for the rudder for one blessed moment. The sails went still. Then the boom whipped whipped across, and the boat tacked along in opposite course. I need coordinates, my father ordered. Navigating meant going down into the hole where the charts were and doing the math to figure out what heading we had to, to be on to reach the next race buoy. But being below, away from the fresh air, only made it worse. I opened a map just in time to throw up all over it. My father found me by default because I hadn't returned with an answer. He poked his head down and saw me sitting in a puddle of my own vomit. For Christ's sake, he muttered, and left me. It took all the strength I had to pull myself up after him. He jerked the wheel and yanked at the rudder. He pretended I was not there, and when he jived, he did not call it. The sail whizzed across the boat, ripping the seam out of the the sky. The boom flew, clipped me on the back of the head, and knocked me out. I came to, just as my father was stealing the wind of another boat, mere feet from the finish line. The rain had mellowed to a mist, and as he put our craft between the airstream and our closest competitor, the other boat fell back. We won by seconds. I was told to clean up my mess and and take the taxi in, while my father sailed the dory to the yacht club to celebrate. It was an hour later when when I finally arrived, and by then he was in high spirits, drinking scotch from the crystal cup he had won. Here comes your crew, Cam, a friend called out. My father lifted the victory cup in salute, drank deeply, and then slammed it down so hard on the bar that its handle shattered. Oh, said another sailor. That's a shame. My father never took his eyes off me. Isn't it, though, he said. On the rear bumper of practically every third car in Rhode Island, you'll find a red and white sticker celebrating the victims of some of the bigger criminal cases in the state. My friend, De Kubelis was killed by a drunk driver. My friend, John Sissom, was killed by a drunk driver. These are given out at school fairs and fundraisers and hair salons, and it doesn't matter if you never knew the kid who got killed. You put them on your vehicle out of solidarity and secret joy that this tragedy did not happen to you. Last night, there were red and white stickers with a new victim's name, Dina de Salvo? I don't know. Unlike the other victims, this one I knew marginally. She was the 12-year-old daughter of a judge who reportedly broke down during a custody trial held shortly after the funeral and took a three-month leave of absence to deal with his grief. The same judge, incidentally, who has been assigned to Anna Fitzgerald's case. As I make my way into the Garahi complex, where the family court is housed, I wonder if a man carrying around so much baggage will be able to try a case where a winning outcome for my client will precipitate the death of her teenage sister. There's a new bailiff at the entrance. A man with a neck as thick as, as a redwood and most likely the brain power to match. Sorry, he says. No pets. This is a service dog. Confused, the bailiff leans forward and peers into my eyes. I do the same right back at him. I'm nearsighted. He helps me read the road signs. Stepping around the guy, Judge and I head down the hall to the courtroom. Inside, the clerk is being taken down a peg by Anna Fitzgerald's mother. That's my assumption, at least, because in actuality the woman looks nothing like her daughter who stands beside her. I'm quite sure that this case the judge would understand. Sarah Fitzgerald argues. Her husband waits a few feet behind her, apart. When Anna notices me, a wash of relief rushes over her features. I turn to the clerk of the court. "'I'm Campbell Alexander,' I say. "'Is there a problem?' "'I've been trying to explain to Mrs. Fitzgerald here that we only allow attorneys into chambers.' "'Well, I'm here on behalf of Anna,' I reply. The clerk turns to Sarah Fitzgerald. "'Who's representing your party?' Anna's mother is stricken for a moment. She turns to her husband. It's like riding a bicycle, she says quietly. Her husband shakes his head. Are you sure you want to do this? I don't want I don't want to do this. I have to do this. <clears throat> the words fall into place like cogs. Hang on, I say you're a lawyer? Sarah turns. Well yes. I glance down at Anna, incredulous, and you neglected to mention this? "'You never ask. She asked,' she whispers. "'The clerk gives us each an entry of appearance form "'and summons the sheriff. Vern. Sarah smiles, "'good to see you again. "'Oh, this just keeps getting better. "'Hey!' The sheriff kisses her cheek, "'shakes hands with the husband. "'Ryan! "'So not only is she an attorney, "'but she also has all the public servants "'in the palm of her hand. "'Are we finished with old home day?' I ask, "'and Sarah Fitzgerald rolls her eyes at the sheriff.' "'The guy's a jerk, but what are you gonna do?' "'Stay here,' I tell Anna, and I follow her mother back toward Chambers. "'Judge DeSalvo is a short man with a monobrow and and a fondness for coffee milk. "'Good morning,' he says, waving us toward our seats. "'What's with the dog?' "'He's a service dog, Your Honor.' "'Before he can say anything else, I leap into the genial conversation that heralds every meeting in Chambers in Rhode Island.' We are a small state, smaller still in the legal community. It is not only conceivable that your paralegal is the niece or sister in law of the judge with whom you're meeting, it's downright likely. As we chat, I glance over at Sarah, who needs to understand which part of us is which part of us is part of this game which of us is part of this game, and which of us isn't. Maybe she was an attorney, but not in the ten years I've been one. She is nervous, pleating the bottom of her blouse Judge Salvo notices, I didn't know you were practicing law again. I wasn't planning to, Your Honor, but the complainant is is my daughter. At that, the judge turns to me. Well, what's this all about, Counselor? Mrs. Fitzgerald's youngest daughter is seeking medical emancipation from her parents. Sarah shakes her head. That's not true, Judge. Hearing his name, my my dog glances up. I spoke to Anna, and she assured me she really doesn't want to do this. She had a bad day and wanted a little extra attention. Sarah lifts a shoulder. You know how 13-year-olds can be. The room grows so quiet, I can hear my own pulse. Judge DeSalvo doesn't know how 13-year-olds can be. His daughter died when she was 12. Sarah's face flames red. Like the rest of this state, she knows about Dina DeSalvo for all i know she's got one of the bumper stickers on her minivan oh god i'm so sorry i didn't mean the judge looks away mr alexander when was the last time you spoke with your client yesterday morning your honor she was in my office when her mother called me to say it was a misunderstanding predictably sarah's jaw drops she couldn't have been she was jogging i look at her You sure about that? She was supposed to be jogging. Your Honor, I say, this is precisely my point, and the reason Anna Fitzgerald's petition has merit. Her own mother isn't aware of where she is on any given morning. Medical decisions regarding Anna are made with the same haphazard. Counselor, can it? The judge turns to Sarah. Your daughter told you she wanted to call off the lawsuit? Yes. Yes. He glances at me. And she told you that she wanted to continue? That's right. Then I'd better talk directly to Anna. When the judge gets up and walks out of chambers, we follow. Anna is sitting on a green be- on a bench in the hall with her father. One of her sneakers is untied. I spy something green, I hear her say. And then she looks up. Anna, I say, at the exact same moment as Sarah Fitzgerald. It is my responsibility ability- Responsibility. To explain to Anna that I, to I, to explain to Anna that Judge Tosalvo wants a few minutes in a few minutes in private. I need to coach her so that she se- says the right thing, so that the judge doesn't throw the case out before she gets what she wants. She is my client by definition. She is supposed to follow my counsel. But when I call her name, she turns toward her mother, Anna. I don't think anyone would come to my funeral. My parents, I guess, and Aunt Zan, and maybe Mr. Ollencott, the social studies teacher. I pictured the same cemetery we went to for my grandmother's funeral, although that was in Chicago, so it doesn't really make any sense. There would be rolling, gr- rolling hills that look like green velvet, and statues of gods and lesser angels, and that big brown hole in the ground like a split seam, waiting to swallow the body that used to be me. I imagine my mom in a black billed Jackio hat, sobbing, my dad holding on to her, Kate and Jessie staring at the shine of the coffin and trying to play guard- bargain with God for all the times they did something mean to me. It is possible that some of the guys from my hockey team would come, clutching lilies in their composure. That's Anna, they'd say, and they wouldn't cry, but they'd want to. There would be an obituary on page 24 of the paper, and maybe Kyle McPhee would see it and come to the funeral, his beautiful face twisted up with the what-ifs of the girlfriend he never got to have. I think there would be flowers, sweet peas and snapdragons and blue balls of hydrangea. I hope someone would sing Amazing Grace, not just the famous first verse, but all of them. And afterward, when the leaves turned and the snow came, every now and then I would rise in everyone's mind like minds like a tide. At Kate's funeral, everyone will come. There will be nurses from the hospital who've gotten to be our friends, and other cancer patients still counting their lucky stars, and townspeople who helped raise money for her treatments. They will have to turn they will have to turn mourners away at the cemetery gates. There will be so many lush funeral baskets that some will be donated to charity. The newspaper will run a story a story of her short and tragic life. Mark my words, it will be on the front page. Judge that's all those wearing flip-flops, the kind soccer players wear, wear when they take off their cleats. I don't know why, but this makes me feel a little better. I mean, it's bad enough I'm here in this courthouse, being led toward his private room in the back. There's something nice about knowing that I'm not the only one who doesn't quite fit the part. He takes a can from a dwarf fridge and asks me what I'd like to drink. Cook would be great, I say. The judge opens the can. Did you know that if you leave a baby tooth in a glass of Coke, in a few weeks it'll completely disappear? Carbonic acid. He smiles at me. My brother is a dentist in Warwick. Does that trick every year for the kindergartners. I take a sip of the Coke and imagine my insides dissolving. Judge DeSalvo doesn't sit down behind his desk, but instead takes a chair right next to me. Here's the problem, Anna he says, your mom is telling me you want to do one thing, and your lawyer is telling me you want to do another. Now, under normal circumstances, I'd expect your mother to know you better than some guy you met two days ago, but you never would have met this guy if you hadn't sought him out for his services, and that makes me think that I need to hear what you think about all this. Can I ask you something? Sure, he says. Does there have to be a trial? Well, your parents can just agree to medical emancipation, and that would be that. The judge says, like that would ever happen. On the other hand, once someone files a petition, like you have, then the respondent, your parents, have to go to court. If your parents really believe you're not ready to make these kinds of decisions by yourself, they have to present their reasons to me, or else risk having risk having me find in, find in your favor by default. I nod. I have told myself that no matter what, I'm going to keep cool. If I fall apart at the seams, there's no way this judge will think I'm capable of deciding anything. I have all these brilliant intentions, but I get sidetracked by the sight of the judge lifting his can of apple juice. Not too long ago, when Kate was in the hospital to get her kidneys checked out, a new nurse handed her a cup and asked for a urine sample. It better be ready when I come back for it, she said. Kate, who wasn't a a fan of snotty demands, decided the nurse needed to be taken down a peg. She sent me out on a mission to the vending machines to get the very juice that the judge is drinking now. She poured this into the specimen cup. And when the nurse came back, held it up to the light. Huh, Kate says. Looks a little cloudy. Better filter it through again. And then she lifted it to her lips and drank it down. The nurse turned white and flew out of the room. Kate and I, we laughed until our stomachs cramped. For the rest of that day, all we had to do was catch each other's eye and we'd dissolve. Like a tooth. And then there's nothing left. Anna, Judge Dissolvo prompts, and then he sets the stupid can on mo- of Motts down on the table between us and I burst into tears. I can't give a kidney to my sister. I just can't. Without a word, Judge DeSalvo hands me a box of Kleenex. I wad some into a ball, wipe up my eyes and my nose. For a while, he's quiet, letting me catch my breath. When I look up, I find him waiting. Anna, no hospital in this country will take an organ from an unwilling donor. Who do you think signs off on it? I ask. Not the little kid getting wheeled into the OR, her parents. You're not a little kid. You can certainly make your objections known, he says. Oh, right, I say, tearing up again. When you complain because someone's sticking a needle into you for the tenth time, it's considered standard operating procedure. All the adults look around with fake smiles and tell each other that no one voluntarily asks for more needles. I blow my nose into a Kleenex. The kidney? That's just today. Tomorrow it'll be something else. It's always something else. Your mother told me you want to drop the lawsuit, he says. Did she lie to me? No. I swallow hard. Then why did you lie to her? There are a thousand answers for that. I choose the easy one. Because I love her, I say, and the tears come all over again. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. He stares at me hard. You know what, Anna? Anna? I'm going to appoint someone who's going to help your lawyer tell me what's best for you. How does that sound? My hair's fallen all over the place. I tuck it behind my ear. My face is so red it feels swollen. Okay, I answer. Okay. He presses an intercom button and asks to have everyone else sent back. My mother comes into the room first and starts to make her way over to me until Campbell and his dog cut her off. He raises his brows and gives me a thumbs-up sign, but it's a question. I'm not sure what's going on, Judge Desalvo says, so I'm appointing a guardian ad litem to spend two weeks with her. Needless to say, I expect full cooperation on both of your parts. I want the guardian litem's report back, and then we'll have a hearing. If there's anything more I need to know at, the t- at that time, bring it with you. Two weeks, my mother says. I know what she's thinking. Your Honor, with all due respect, two weeks is a very long time, given the severity of my other daughter's illness. She looks like someone I do not recognize. I've seen her before be a tiger, fighting a medical system that isn't moving fast enough for her. I've seen her be a rock, giving the rest of us something to cling to. I've seen her be a boxer, coming up swinging before the next punch can be thrown by fate but I have never seen her be a lawyer before. Judge DeSalvo nods. All right, we'll have a hearing next Monday then. In the meantime, I want Kate's medical records brought to... Your Honor, Campbell Alexander interrupts. As you're well aware, due to the strange circumstances of my case, my client is living with opposing counsel. That's a flagrant breach of justice. My mother sucks in her breath. You are not suggesting my child be taken from me. Take it away? Where would I go? I can't be sure that opposing counsel won't try to use her living living arrangements to her best advantage, Your Honor, and possibly pressure my client. Campbell stares right at the judge, unblinking. Mr. Alexander, there is no way I am pulling this child out of her home. Judge DiSalvo says, but then he turns to my mother. However, Mrs. Fitzgerald, you cannot talk about this case with your daughter unless her attorney is present. If you can't agree to that, or if I hear of any breach of the, of, in that domestic Chinese wall, I may have to take more drastic action. Understood, Your Honor, my mother says. Well, Judge DiSalvo stands up. I'll see you all next week. He walks out of the room, his flip-flops making small, sucking slaps on the, on the tile floor. The minute he is gone, I turn to my mother. I can explain, I want to say, but it never makes its way out loud. Suddenly, a wet nose pokes into my hand. Judge. It makes my heart, that runaway train, slow down. I need to speak to my client, Campbell says. Right now, she's my daughter, my mother says, and she takes my hand and yanks me out of my chair. At the threshold of the door, I manage to look back. Campbell's fuming. I could have told him it would wind up like this. Daughter trumps everything, no matter what the game. World War III begins immediately, not with an assassinated archduke or a crazy dictator, but with a missed left turn. Brian, my mother says, craning her neck. That was North Park Street. My father blinks out of his fog. You could have told me before I passed it. I did. Before I can even weigh the costs and benefits of entering someone else's battle again, I say. I didn't- I didn't hear you. My mother's head whips around. Anna, right now, you are the last person whose input I need or want. I just... She holds up her hand like the privacy partition in a cab. She shakes her head. On the back seat, I slide sideways and curl my feet again. Curl my feet up, facing to the rear so that all I see is black. Brian, my mother says, you missed it again. When we walk in, my mother steams past Kate, who opened the door for us, and past Jessie, who is watching what looks like the scrambled Playboy channel on TV. In the kitchen, she opens cabinets and bangs them shut. She takes food from the refrigerator and smacks it onto the table. "'Hey,' my father says to Kate. "'How are you feeling?' She ignores him, pushing into the kitchen. "'What happened?' "'What happened?' "'Well,' my mother pins me with a gaze. "'Why don't you ask your sister what happens?' Kate turns to me, all eyes. Amazing how quiet you are now when a judge isn't listening. My mother says, she made you talk to a judge? Damn, Anna. My fa- my mother closes her eyes. Jesse, you know, now would be a good time for you to leave. You don't have to ask me twice, he says, his voice full of broken glass. We hear the front door open and shut, a whole story. Sarah? My father steps into the room. We all need to cool off a little. I have one child who's just signed her sister's death sentence, and I'm supposed to cool off? The kitchen gets so silent we can hear the refrigerator whispering. My mother's words hang like two ripe fruit. When they fall on the floor and burst, my- she shudders into motion. Kate, she says, hurrying toward my sister, her arms already outstretched. Kate, I shouldn't have said that. It's not what I meant. In my family, we seem to have a tortured history of not saying what we ought to and not meaning what we do. Kate covers her mouth with her hand. She backs out of the kitchen door, bumping into my father, who fumbles but cannot catch her as she scrambles upstairs. I hear the door to our room slam shut. My mother, of course, goes after her. So I do what I do best. I move in the opposite direction. Is there any place on earth that smells better than a laundromat? It's like a rainy Sunday when you don't have to have to get out from under your covers. Or like lying back on the grass your father's just mowed. Comfort food for your nose. When I was little, my mom would take hot clothes out of the dryer and dump them on top of me when I was sitting on the couch. I used to pretend they were a single skin, that I was curled tight beneath them like one large heart. The other- th- <coughs> My voice is dying. Oh God! Sixty nine minutes in. Ooh. Ooh. Well, if my dog were here and I kept howling like that, she would like cry, like not cry, is like whimpery sad dog, but cry because she thinks that the sound she's supposed to make to sound like she's howling. Because I can't read. I can't really howl and sound like a dog. So like, it just sounds like sobbing, like a dog, like a very sad thing. So then my dog gets concerned and she makes the same sound cause she thinks that's what we're doing. She thinks it's fun. So like, I'll just be like, Aah! and eventually if I keep doing it, then she'll cry. But I just explained the cry thing. So like, don't be concerned. Don't think I'm like making my dog cry because it's funny. Don't think I'm making my dog upset because it's funny. Because, like, I'm making her cry, but not cry. I'm just digging myself deeper and deeper into this hole. Honestly, bro. Um, gonna take a brief break though, because I am overheating and my throat hurts. Returned, throat's doing better. The other thing I like is that laundromats draw lonely people like metal to magnets. There's a guy passed out on a bank of chairs in the back with army boots and a T-shirt that says "Nostradamus was an optimist." A woman at the folding table sifts through a heap of men's button-down shirts, sniffing back tears. Put ten people together in a laundromat, and chances are you won't be able to tell who's—you won't be the one who's worse off. Worst off. I sit down across from a bank of washers and try to match up the clothes with the people waiting. The pink panties and lace nightgown belong to the girl who was reading a romance novel. The woolly red socks and checkered shirt are the sankey sleeping student. The soccer jerseys and kitty overalls come from the toddler who keeps handing filmy white dryer sheets to her mom, oblivious on a cell phone. What kind of person can afford a cell phone but not her own washer and dryer? "'I play a game with myself sometimes "'and try to imagine what it would be like "'to be the person whose clothes are spinning in front of me. "'If I were washing those carpenter jeans, "'maybe I'd be a roofer in Phoenix, "'my arms strong and my back tan. "'If I had those flowered sheets, "'I might be on break from Harvard, "'studying criminal profiling. "'If I owned that satin cape, "'I might have, a, I might have season tickets to the ballet.' And then I try to see, picture myself doing any of these things, and I can't. All I can ever see is me, being a donor for Kate, each time stretching to the next. Kate and I are Siamese twins. You just can't see the spot where we're connected, which makes separation that much more difficult. When I look up, the girl who works on the laundromat is standing over me with, with her lip ring and blue streaked dreadlocks. You need change? she asks. To tell you the truth, I'm afraid to hear my own answer. I've been waiting for this one, turn it up, it's Jesse's chapter, well, one of Jesse's chapters, He was obviously gonna have more. I'm the- Jesse, I'm the kid who played with matches, I used to steal them from the shelf above the refrigerator, take them into my parents' bathroom, Jean Tay Bath Splash ignites, did you know that? Spill it, strike, and you can set fire to the floor. It burns blue and when the alcohol is gone it stops Once Anna walked in on me when I was in the bathroom. Hey, I said, check this out. I dribbled some g- some Jean some Jean floor, her initials, then I torched them. I figured she'd run screaming like a tattletale, but instead she sat right on the edge of the bath- right down on the edge of the bathtub. She reached for the bottle of Jean de Dete, made some loopy design on the tiles, and told me to do it again. And as the only proof I have that I was born into this family, instead of dropped off on the doorstep by some Bonnie and Clyde couple that ran off into the night. On the surface were polar opposites. Under the skin, though, were the same. People think they know what they're getting, and they're always wrong. Man, is it good that I said the fuck word already, because it, man, it's about a- Jesse. I'm not a simp, but Jesse's a great character. And I'm a kinny, that's what I am. I'm a Jesse Ken. And as we go through this, I have a feeling Jinxie, or if the other kids or kiddos join in and listen along, they will also be Jesse kiddies. I'm not going to spoil anything, but just know. Like their- Fuck them all. I ought to have that tattooed on my forehead for all the times I've thought it. Usually I'm in transit, speeding in my jeep until my lungs give out. Today I'm driving 95 down 95. I weave in and out of traffic, sewing up a scar. People yell at me behind their closed windows. I give them the finger. It would solve a thousand problems if I rolled the jeep over an, an embankment. It's not like I haven't thought about it, you know. On my license, it says I'm an organ donor. But the truth is, this, I'd consider being an organ martyr. I'm sure I'm worth a lot more dead than alive. The sum of the parts equals more than the whole. I wonder who might wind up walking around with my liver, my lungs, even my eyeballs. I wonder what poor asshole will get stuck with whatever it is in me that passes from a heart. To my dismay, though, I get all the way to the exit without a scratch. I peel off the ramp and tool along Allen's Avenue. There's an underpass there where I know I'll find... Duracell Dan. He's a homeless dude. Vietnam vet. He spends most of his time collecting batteries that people toss into the trash. What the hell he does with them? I don't know. He opens them up. I know that much. He says the CIA hides messages for all its operators and Energizer A's that the FBI sticks to Ever- Everetties. Dan and I have a deal. I bring him a McDonald's value meal a few times a week, and in return, he watches over my stuff. I find him huddled over the astrology book that he considers his manifesto. Dan, I say, getting out of the car and handing him his Big Mac. What's up? He squints at me. The moon's in freaking Aquarius. He stuffs a fry into his mouth. I never should have gotten out of bed. If Dan has a bed, it's news to me. Sorry about that, I say. Got my stuff? He jerks his head to the barrels behind the concrete pylon where he keeps my things. The perchloric acid filched from the chemistry lab at the high school is intact, in another barrel is the sawdust. I hike the stuffed pillowcase under my arm and haul it to the car. I find him waiting at the door. Thanks. He leans against the car. won't let me get inside. They gave me a message for you, even though my even though everything that comes out of Dan's mouth is total bullshit. My stomach rolls over. You did? He looks down the road, then back at me. You know, leaning closer, he whispers. Think twice. That was the message? Dan nods. Yeah, it was that or drink twice. I can't be sure. That advice I might actually listen to. I shove him a little so that I can get back- so that I can get into the car. He is lighter than you'd think, like whatever was inside him was used- was used used up long ago. With that reasoning, it's a wonder I'd- I don't float off into the sky. Later, I tell him, and then I drive toward the warehouse I've been watching. I look for places like me, big, hollow, forgotten by most everyone. This one's in the Ol- Olneyville area. At one time, it was used as a storage facility for an export business. Now it's pretty much just home to an extended family of rats. I park far enough away so that no one would think twice about my car. I stuff the pillowcase of sawdust under my jacket and take off. It turns out that I learned something from my dear old dad after all. Firemen are experts at getting into places they shouldn't be. It doesn't take much to pick up the lock, and that's just a matter of figuring out where to start. I cut a hole in the bottom of the pillowcase and let the sawdust draw three fat initials, J-B-F. Then I take the acid and dribble it over the letters. This is the first time I've done it in the middle of the day. I take a pack of marids out of my pocket and tamp them down, then stick one into my mouth. My zippo's almost at a lighter fluid. I need to remember to get some. When I'm finished, I get to my feet, take one last drag, and toss the cigarette into the sawdust. I know this one's going to move fast, so I'm already running when the wall of fire rises behind me. Like all the others, they will look for clues, but this cigarette and my initials will have been long been gone. The whole floor underneath them will melt. The walls will buckle and give. The first engine reaches the scene just as I get back to my car and pull the binoculars out of my trunk. By then, the fire is done what it wants to. Escape. Glass is blown out of windows. Smoke rises black and eclipse. The first time I saw my mother cry, I was five. She was standing at the kitchen window, pretending that she wasn't. The sun was just coming up, a swollen knot. What are you doing? I asked. It was not until years later that I realized I had heard her answer all wrong. That when she said morning, she had not been talking about the time of day. The sky, now, is thick and dark with smoke. Sparks shower as the roof falls in. A second crew of firefighters arrives. the the ones who have been called in from their dinner tables and showers and living rooms. With the monoculars, I can make out his name, winking on the back of his turnout coat like it's filled in diamonds. Fitzgerald. My father lays hands on a charred line, and I get into my car and drive away. At home, my mother is having a nervous breakdown. She flies out the door as soon as I pull into my parking spot. Thank God, she says. I need your help. She doesn't even look back to see if I'm following her inside. And that is how I know it's Kate. The door to my sister's room has been kicked in. The wooden frame around it splintered. My sister lies still on her bed. Then all of a sudden she bursts to life, jerking up like a tire jack and puking blood. A stain spreads over her shirt and and onto her flowered comforter. Red poppies where there weren't any before. My mother gets down beside her, holding back her hair and pressing a towel up to her mouth where when Kate vomits again, another gush of blood. Jessie, she says matter of factly, your father's out on a call and I can't reach him. I need you to drive us to the hospital so that I can sit in the back with Kate. Kate's lips are as slick as cherries. I pick her up in my arms. She's nothing but bones, poking sharp through the skin of her t shirt. When Anna ran off, Kate wouldn't let me into her room my mother says, hurrying beside me. I give her a little while to calm down, and then I heard her coughing. I had to get in there. So you kicked it down, I think, and it doesn't surprise me. We reach the car, and she opens the door so that I can slide Kate inside. I pull out of the driveway and speed even faster than normal through town onto the highway toward the hospital. Today, when my parents were at court with Anna, Kate and I watched TV. She wanted to put on her soap, and I told her to fuck off and put on the scrambled Playboy channel instead. Now, as I run through red lights, I'm wishing that I'd let her watch that retarded soap. That is not a good word. But we have to continue on with the book. I'm trying not to look at her little white coin of a face in the rearview mirror. You'd think, with all the time I've had to get used to it, that moments like this wouldn't come as such a shock. The question- Question we cannot ask pushes through my veins with each beat. Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? The minute we we hit the ER driveway, my mother's out of the car, hurrying me to get Kate. We're quite a picture, walking through the automatic doors, me with Kate bleeding in my arms, and my mother grabbing the first nurse who walks by. She needs platelets, my mother orders. They take her away from me, and for a few moments, even after the ER team and my mom and my mother have disappeared with Kate behind closed curtains, I stand with my arms buoyed, trying to get used to the fact that there's no longer anything in them. Dr. Chance, the oncologist I know, and Dr. Nugan. Oh, no, I can't pronounce this properly. I am so sorry. I even watch content creators with this last name. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. I need to figure out how to pronounce this last name. I am so sorry for if it's said again, how many times I'm going to butcher it. Some expert, I don't know, I don't, tell us what we've likely already figured out. These are the death throes of end-stage kidney disease. My mother stands next to the bed, her hand tied around Kate's IV pole. Can you still do a transplant, she asks, as if Anna never started her lawsuit, as if it means absolutely nothing. Sorry. Sorry messages. Kate's in a pretty grave clinical state, Dr. Chance tells her. I told you before I didn't know if she was strong enough to survive that level of surgery. The odds are even slighter now. But if there was a donor, she says, would you do it? Wait, you'd think my throat had just been paved with straw. Would mine work? Dr. Chance shakes his head. A kidney donor doesn't have to be a perfect match in an ordinary case, but your sister is in an ordinary case. When the doctors leave, I can feel my mother staring at me. Jessie, she says, it wasn't like I was volunteering. I just wanted to, you know, No, But inside, I'm burning just as hot as I was when that fire caught at the warehouse. What made me believe I might be worth something, even now? What made me think I could save my sister when I can't even save myself? kate's eyes open so that she's staring right at me she licks her lips they're still caked with blood and it makes her look like a vampire the undead if only i lean closer because she doesn't have enough in her right now to make the words creep across the air between us tell she mouths so that my mother won't look up i answer just as silent tell i want to make sure i've got it right tell anna but the door to the room bursts open and my father fills the room with smoke. His hair and clothes and skin reek of it, so much so that I look up, expecting the sprinklers to go off. What happened? He asks, going right to the bed. I slip out of the room because nobody needs me there anymore. In the elevator, in front of the no smoking sign, I light a cigarette. Talana what? Sarah. 1990-1991. to 1991. By pure chance or maybe karmic dis- distribution, all three clients at the hair salon are pregnant. We sit under the dryers, hands folded over our bellies like a row of Buddhas. My top choices are freedom, low, and Jack, says the girl next to me who is getting her hair dyed pink. What if it's not a boy, asked the girl sitting, asked the woman sitting on my other side. Oh, those are meant to be for either. I hide a smile, I vote for Jack. The girl squints, looking out the window at the rotten weather. Sleet is nice, she says absently, and then tries it on for size. Sleet, pick up your toys. Sleet, honey, come on, or we're going to be late for the Uncle Tupelo concert. She takes a piece of paper and a pencil stub out of her maternity, maternity overalls and scribbles down the name. The woman on my left grins at me. Is this your first? My third. Mine too. I have two boys. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I have a boy and a girl, I tell her. Five and three. Do you know what you're having this time? I know everything about this baby, from her sex to the very placement of her chromosomes, including the ones that make her a perfect match for Kate. I know exactly what I am having. A miracle. It's a girl, I answer. Oh, I'm so jealous. My husband and I, we didn't find out at the ultrasound. I thought if I heard it was another boy, I might never finish out the last five months. She shuts off her hairdryer and pushes it back. You have any names picked? It strikes me that I don't. Although I am nine months pregnant, although I have had plenty of time to dream, I have not really considered the specifics of this child. I have thought of this daughter only in terms of what she will be... Of what she will be able to do for the daughter I already have, I haven't admitted this even to Brian, who lies at night with his head on my considerable, be- considerable belly, waiting for the twitches that herald. He thinks the first female place kicker for the Patriots. Then again, my dreams for her are no less exalted. I plan for her to save her sister's life. We're waiting. I tell the woman. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think it is all we ever do. There was a moment after Kate's three months of chemotherapy last year that I was stupid enough to believe we had beaten the odds. Dr. Chance said that she seemed to be in remission and that we would just keep an eye on keep an eye on what came next. And for a little while, my life even got back to normal, chauffeuring Jesse to soccer practice and helping out in Kate's preschool class and even taking a hot bath to relax. And yet, there was a part of me that knew the other shoe was bound to drop this part scoured kate's pillow every morning even after her hair started to grow back with its frizzy burned ends just in case it started falling out again this part went to the geneticist recommended by dr chance engineered an embryo given the thumbs up by scientists to be a perfect match for kate took the hormones for IVF and conceived that embryo just in case it was during a routine bone marrow aspiration that we learned kate was in molecular relapse on the outside, she looked like any other three-year-old girl. On the inside, the cancer had surged through her system again, steamrolling the progress that had been made with chemo. Now, in the back seat with Jesse, Kate's kicking her feet and playing with a toy phone. Jesse sits next to her, staring out the window. Um, do buses ever fall on people? Like, out of trees? No, like, just over. He makes a flipping motion with his hand. Only if the weather's really bad, or if the driver's going too fast. He nods, accepting my explanation for his safety in this universe. Then, Mom, do you have a favorite number? 31, I tell him. This is my due date. How about you? 9, because it can be a number, or how old you are, or a 6 standing on its head. He pauses only long enough to take a breath. Mom, do we have special scissors to cut meat? We do. I take a ride and drive past the cemetery, headstones canted forward and back like a set of yellow teeth. Oh, shh. Give me one moment. Just give me a moment to emotionally prepare, because this line caught me off guard. Okay. So, graveyard, blah, blah, blah. Mom, Jessie asks, is that where Kate will go? The question, just as innocent as any of the others Jesse would ask, makes my legs go weak. I pull the car over and put on my hazard lights. Then I unbuckle my seatbelt and turn around. No, Jess, I tell him, she's staying with us. Mr. and Mrs. Fitzgerald, the producer says, this is where we'll put you. We sit down on the set at the TV studio. We've been invited here because of our baby's unorthodox conception. Somehow, in an effort to keep Kate healthy, we've unwittingly become the, pos- the poster children for scientific debate. Brian reaches for my hand as we are appro- approached by Nadia Tarter, the reporter for the news magazine. We're just, go- we're just about ready. I've already taped an intro about Kate. All I'm going to do is ask you a few questions, and we'll be finished before you know it. Just before the camera starts rolling, Brian wipes his cheeks on the sleeve of his shirt. The makeup artist, standing behind the lights, moans. Well, for God's sake, he whispers to me, I'm not going on national TV wearing blush. The camera comes to life with far less ceremony than I've expected. Just a little hum that runs up my arms and legs. Mr. Fitzgerald, Nadia says, can you explain to us why you chose to visit a geneticist in the first place? Brian looks at me. Our three-year-old daughter has a very aggressive form of leukemia. Her oncologist suggested we find a bone marrow donor, but our oldest son wasn't a genetic match. There's a national registry, but by the time the right donor comes along for Kate, she might not be around. So we thought it might be a good idea to see if another sibling of Kate's matched up. A sibling, Nadia says, who doesn't exist. Not yet, Brian replies. What made you turn to a geneticist? Time constraints, I say bluntly. We couldn't keep having babies year after year until one was a match for Kate. The doctor was able to screen several embryos to see which one, if any, would be the ideal donor for Kate. We were lucky enough to have one out of four, and it was implanted through IVF. Nadia looks down at her notes. You've received hate mail, haven't you? Ryan nods. People seem to think that we're trying to make a designer baby. Aren't you? We didn't ask for a baby with blue eyes or one that would grow to be six feet tall and one that would have an IQ of 200. Sure, we asked for specific characteristics, but they're not anything anyone would ever consider to be modeled human traits. They're just Kate's traits. We don't want a super baby. Which is, We just want to save our daughter's life. I squeeze Brian's hand. God, I love him. "'Mrs. Fitzgerald, what will you tell this baby when she grows up?' Nadia asks. "'With any luck,' I say, I'll be able to tell her to stop bugging her sister. "'I go into labor on New Year's Eve. "'The nurse taking care of me tries to distract me from my contractions "'by talking about the signs of the sun. "'This one, she's going to be a Capricorn,' Imelda says as she rubs my shoulders. "'Is that good?' "'Oh, Capricorns, think of the job done. "'Inhale, exhale. "'Good to... No, I tell her. There are two other babies being born. One woman, Imelda says, has her legs crossed. She's trying to make it to 1991. The New Year's baby is entitled to packs of free diapers and a $100 savings bond from Citizens Bank for that distant college education. When Imelda goes out to to the nurse's desk, leaving us alone, Brian reaches for my hand. You okay? Oh my god, that voice cracked ignore me. "'I grimace my way through another contraction. "'I'd be better if this was over.' "'He smiles at me. "'To a paramedic-slash-firefighter, "'a routine hospital delivery is something to shrug at. "'If my water had broken during a train wreck, "'or if I was laboring in the back of a taxi... "'I know what you're thinking,' he interrupts, "'although I haven't said a word out loud. "'And you're wrong.' "'He lifts my hand, kisses the knuckles. "'Suddenly an anchor unspools inside me. "'The chain, thick as a fist, twists in my abdomen.' Brian, I gasp. Get the doctor. My OB comes in and holds his hand between my legs. He glances up at the clock. If you can hold on for a minute, hold on a minute, this kid's gonna be born famous, he says, but I take my head. Get it out, I tell him. Now. The doctor looks at Brian. Tax deduction? He guesses. I am thinking of saving, but it has nothing to do with the IRS. The baby's head slips through the seal of my skin. The doctor's hand holds her, slides that gorgeous cord free of her neck, delivers her shoulder by shoulder. I struggle to my elbows to watch what is going on below. The umbilical cord, I remind him. Be careful. He cuts it. Beautiful blood. And hurries it out of the room to a place where it will be cryogenically preserved until Kate is ready for it. Day zero of Kate's pre-transplant regimen starts the morning after Anna is born. I come down from the maternity ward and meet Kate in radiology. We're both wearing yellow isolation gowns, and this makes her laugh. Mom, she says, we laugh. We match, Jesus Christ. She has been given a pediatric cocktail for sedation, and under any other circumstance, this would be funny. Kate can't find her own feet. Every time she stands up, she, she, she collapses. It strikes me that this is how Kate will look when she gets drunk on peach schnapps for the first time in high school or college, and that I quickly remind myself that Kate might never be that old. When the therapist comes to take her into the RT suite, Kate, Kate latches onto my leg. Honey, Brian says, it's gonna be fine. She shakes her head and burrows closer. When I crouch down, she throws herself into my arms. I won't take my eyes off you, I promise. I promise. The room is large, with jungle murals painted on the walls. The linear acceleration accelerators are built into the ceiling, and a pit below the treatment table, and a pit below the tr- treatment table, which is little more than a canvas cot ca- covered with a sheet. The radiation therapist places places thick lead pieces shaped like beans onto. Ca- Sorry, I have an itch to Kate's chest and tells her not to move. She promises that when it's all over, Kate can have a sticker. I stare at Kate through the protective glass wall. Gamma rays, leuke- leukemia, parenthood. It is the things you cannot see coming that are strong enough to kill you. There is a Murphy's Law to oncology, one which is not written anywhere but held in widespread belief. If you don't get sick, you won't get well. Therefore, if your chemo makes you violently ill, if radiation sears your skin, it's all good. On the other hand, if you sail through therapy quickly with only negligible nausea or pain, chances are the drugs have somehow been excreted by your body and aren't doing their job. By this criterion, Kate should surely be cured by now. Unlike last year's chemo, this course of treatment has taken a little girl who didn't even have a runny nose and has turned her into a physical wreck. Three days of radiation has caused constant diarrhea and put her back into a diaper. At first, this embarrassed her. Now she is so sick she doesn't care. The following five days of chemo have lined her throat with mucus, which keeps her clutching at a suction tube as if it is a life preserver. When she is awake, all she does is cry. Since day six, when Kate's white blood cell and neutrophil pounds began to plummet, she has been in reverse isolation. Any germ in the world might kill her now. For this reason, the world is made to keep its distance. Visitors to her room are restricted, and those who are allowed in look like spacemen, gowned and masked. Kay has to read picture books while wearing rubber gloves. No plants or flowers are permitted because they carry bacteria that could kill her. Any toy given to her must be scrubbed down with an antiseptic with antiseptic solution first. She sleeps with her teddy bear sealed in a Ziploc bag, which rustles all night and sometimes wakes her up. Brian and I sit outside the ant an- the room waiting. While Kate sleeps, I practice giving injections to an orange. After the transplant, Kate will need growth factor shots, and the chore will fall to me. I prick the syringe under the thick skin of the fruit until I feel the soft give of tissue underneath. The drug I will be giving is a subcutaneous is subcutaneous, injected un- just under the skin. I need to make sure the ankle is right and that I am giving the proper amount of pressure. The speed with which you push the needle down can cause more or less pain. The orange, of course, doesn't cry when I make a mistake. The nurses still tell me that injecting Kate won't feel much different. Brian picks up a second orange and begins to peel it. Put that down! I'm hungry. He nods at the fruit in my hand. And you've already got a patient. For all you know, that was someone else's. God knows what it's doped up with. Suddenly, Dr. Champs turns the corner and approaches us. Donna, an oncology nurse, walks behind him, brandishing an IV filled with crimson liquid. Drumroll, she says. I put down my orange, followed them into the anteroom, room, and suit up so that I can come within ten feet of my daughter. With minutes... Within minutes, Donna attaches the bag to a pole and connects the drip to Kate's central line. It is so anticlimactic that Kate doesn't even wake up. I stand on one side as Ryan goes to the other. I hold my breath, I stare down at Kate's hips, the iliac crest, where where bone marrow is made. Through some miracle, these stem cells of Annas will go in, will go into Kate's bloodstream in her in her chest, but will find their way to the right spot. Well, Dr. Chance says, and we all watch the cord blood slowly slide through the tubing. A crazy straw of possibility. Uh, I honestly don't know who this is. It's Julia? So, we'll find out who Julia is together. I don't know who that is. Julia. After two hours of living with my sister again, I'm finding it hard to believe we ever comfortably shared a womb. Isabel has already organized my CDs by year of release, swept under the couch, and tossed out half the food in my refrigerator. Dates are our friend, Julia, she sighs. You have yogurt in here from when Democrats ruled the White House. I slam the door shut and count to ten, but when Izzy moves toward the gas oven and starts looking for the cleaning controls, I lose my cool. Sylvia doesn't need cleaning. That's another thing. Sylvia, the oven. Smilla, the fridge. Do we really need to name our kitchen appliances? My kitchen appliances. Mine, not ours. God damn it! I'm totally getting why Janet broke up with you. I mutter. At that, Izzy looks up, stricken. You are horrible, she says. You were horrible, and after I was born, I should have sewed Mom shut. She runs to the bathroom in tears. Isabelle is three minutes older than me but I've always been the one to, who takes care of her. I'm her nuclear bomb. When there's something upsetier, upsetting her, I go in and lay waste to it. Whether that's one of our six older brothers teasing her or the evil Janet who decided she wasn't gay after seven years into a committed relationship with Izzy. Growing up, Izzy was the goody two-shoes and I was the one who came up fighting. Swinging my fists or shaving my head to get a rise out of her, our parents were wearing combat boots with my high school uniform. Yet now we're that... Yet now that we're thirty-two, I'm a card-carrying member of the rat race, while Izzy is a lesbian who builds jewelry out of paper clips and bolts. Go figure. The door to the bathroom doesn't lock, but Izzy doesn't know that yet. So I walk in and wait until she finishes splashing cold water on her face, and I hand her a towel. Iz, I didn't mean it. I know. She looks at me in the mirror. Most people can't tell us apart now that I have a real job that requires conventional hair and conventional clothes. At least you had a relationship, I point out. The last time I had a date was when I bought that yogurt. Izzy's lips curve, and she turns to me. Does the toilet have a name? I was thinking of Janet, I say, and my sister cracks up. The telephone rings, and I go into the living room to answer it. Julia, this is Judge DeSalvo calling. I've got a case that needs a guardian ad litem, and I'm hoping you might be able to help me out. I became a guardian ad litem a year ago when I realized that non-profit work wasn't covering my rent. A GAL is appointed by a court to be a child's advocate during legal proceedings that involve a minor. You don't have to be a lawyer to be trained as as a GAL, but you do have to have a moral compass and a heart, which actually probably renders most lawyers unqualified for the job. Julia, are you there? I would turn cartwheels for Judge Though He pulled strings to get me a job when I first became a GAL. Whatever you need, I promise. What's going on? He gives me background information. Phrases like medical emancipation and 13 and mother with legal background float by me. Only two items stick. The word urgent and the name of the attorney. God, I can't do this. I can be there in an hour, I say. Good, because I think this kid needs someone in her corner. Who was that? Izzy asks. She is unpacking the box that holds her work supplies, tools and wire and little containers of metal bits that sound like teeth and gnashing when she gets, sets them down. A judge, I reply. There's a girl who needs help, but I don't tell my sisters that I'm talking about me. Nobody's home at the Fitzgerald house. I ring the doorbell twice, certain this must be a mistake. From what Judge DeSalvo led me to believe this is a family in crisis, but I find myself standing in front of a well-kept cape with carefully tended flower gardens lining the walk. When I turn around to go back to the car, I see the girl. She still has that knobby, calf-like look of preteens. She jumps over every sidewalk crack. Hi, I say when she is close enough to hear me. Are you Anna? Her chin snaps up. Maybe. I'm Julia Romano. Judge DeSalvo asked me to be your guardian ad litem. Do you explain to you what that is? Anna narrows her eyes. There was a girl in Brockton who got kidnapped by someone who said that they didn't ask by her mom to pick her up and drive her to the place where her mom worked. I rummaged in my purse and I rummaged in my purse and pulled out my driver's licence and a stack of papers. Here I say, be my guest. She glances at me and then at the god-awful picture on my license. She reads through the copy of the emancipation petition I picked up at the family court before I came here. If I am a psychotic killer, then I have done my homework well. But there is a part of me already giving Anna Anna credit for being wary. This is not a child who rushes headlong into situations. If she's thinking long and hard about going off with me, presumably she must have thought long and hard about untangling herself from the net of her family. She hands back everything I've given her. "'Where is everyone?' she asks. "'I don't know. I thought you could tell me.' Anna, Anna's gaze slides to the front door, nervous. I hope nothing happened to Kate. I tilt my head, considering this girl, who has already managed to surprise me. "'Do you have time to talk?' I ask. "'The zebras are the first stop in the Roger Williams Zoo. Of all the animals in the Africa section, these have always been my favorite. I can get or take elephants. I can never find the cheetah.' I never can find the cheetah, but the zebras captivate me. They'd be one of the few things that would fit if we were lucky enough to live in a world that's black and white. We pass blue. blue doikers. Doikers? D U I K E R S bongos, and something called a naked mole rat that doesn't come out of its cave. I often take kids to the zoo when I'm assigned to their cases. Unlike when we sit down face-to-face in a cour- in the courthouse or even at Dunkin' Donuts, at the zoo they are more likely to open up to me. They'll watch the, gib- the gibbons swinging around like Olympic gymnasts and just start talking about what happens at home without even realizing what they are doing. Anna, though, is older than all of the kids I've worked with, and less than thrilled to be here. In retrospect, I realize this was a bad choice. I should have taken her to a mall. To a movie. We walk through the winding trails of the zoo. Anna talking only when forced to respond. She answers me politely when I ask her questions about her sister's health. She says that her mother is, indeed, the opposing attorney. (coughs) She thanks me when I buy her an ice cream. Tell me what you like to do, I say, for fun. Play hockey, Anna says. I used to be a goaltender. Used to be? The older you get, the less the coach forgives you if you miss a game, she shrugs. I don't like letting a whole team down. Interesting way to put it, I think. I think. Do your friends still play hockey? Friends? She shakes her head. You can't really have anyone over to your house when your sister needs to be resting. You don't get invited back for sleepovers when your mom comes to pick you up at two in the morning to go to the hospital. It's probably been a while since you've been in middle school, but most people think freakhood is contagious. So who do you talk to? She looks at me. Kate, she says. Then she asks if I have a cell phone. I take one out of my pocketbook and watch her dial the hospital's number by heart. I'm looking for a patient, Anna says to the operator. Kate Fitzgerald? She glances up at me. Thanks, anyway. Punching the button, she hands the phone back to me. Kate isn't registered. That's good, right? It could just mean that the paperwork hasn't caught up to the operator yet. Sometimes it takes a few hours. I lean against a railing near the elephant's. "'You seem pretty worried about your sister right now,' I point out. "'Are you sure you're ready to face what's going to happen if you stop being a donor?' "'I know it's going to happen,' Anna's voice is, is low. "'I never said I liked it.' "'She raises her face to mine, challenging me to find fault with her. "'For a minute I look at her. "'What would I do if I found out that Izzy needed a kidney, or part of my liver, or marrow? "'The answer isn't even questionable. "'I would ask how quickly we could go to the hospital and have it done.' But then, it would have been my choice, my decision. Have your parents ever asked you if you want to be a donor for your sister? Anna shrugs. Kind of. The way parents ask questions that they already have, been, have answered in their heads. You weren't the reason that the whole second grade stayed in for recess, were you? Or, you want some broccoli, Right? It's dying again. Gonna pause, gonna pause. Ooh, I paused for that horrendous cough. Good job, me. Did you ever tell your parents that you were uncomfortable with the choice they'd made for you? Anna pushes away from the elephants and begins to trudge up the hill. I might have complained a couple of times, but they're Kate's parents, too. Small tumblers in this puzzle begin to hitch for me. Traditionally, parents make decisions for a child because presumably they are looking out for his or her best interests. But if they they are blinded instead by the best interests of another one of their children, the system breaks down. And somewhere underneath all the rubble are casualties like Anna. The question is, did she instigate this lawsuit because she truly feels that she can make better choices about her own medical care than her parents can? care than her parents can, or because she wants her parents to hear her for once when she cries. We wind up in front of the polar bears, Trixie and Norton. For the first time since we've gotten here, Anna's face lights up. She watches Kobe, Trixie's cub, the newest addition to the zoo. He swats at his mother as she lies on the rocks, trying to get her to play. The last time there was a polar bear baby, Anna says, they gave it to another zoo. She is right. Memories of the articles in the projo swim of the in the Pro swim into my mind It was a big public relations move for Rhode Island. Do you think he wonders what he did to get himself sent away? We are trained, as guardians ad litem to see the signs of depression, to know how to read body language and flat effect and mood swings. Anna's hands are clenched around the metal railing. Her eyes go dull as old gold. Either this girl loses her sister, I think, or she's going to lose herself. Julia, she asks, would it be okay if we went home? Oh god, I'm just, I need, I'm realizing so much foreshadowing I didn't notice on the first read. Oh my god. I can't tell you anything. I can't tell you anything yet because it's so huge. Oh my god. Oh man. Fuck. I can say the fuck word now. I can say the fuck word now because it's said in the book and rules are broken. The closer we get to her house, Anna distances herself from me. A pretty nifty trick, given that the physical space between us remains unaltered. She shrinks against the window of my car, staring at the streets that bleed by. What happens next? I'm going to talk to everyone else. Your mom and dad, your brother and sister, your lawyer. Now a dilapidated Jeep is parked in the driveway, and the front door of the house is open. I turn off the ignition, but Anna makes no move to release her seatbelt. Will you walk me in? Why? Because my mother's going to kill me? This Anna, genuinely skittish, bears little resemblance to the one I've spent the past hour with. I wonder how a girl might be both brave enough to instigate a lawsuit and afraid to face her own mother. How come? "'I sort of left today without telling her where I was going. "'You do that a lot?' "'Anna shakes her head. "'Usually I do whatever I'm told. "'Well, I'm going to have to speak to Sarah Fitzgerald sooner or later. "'I get out of the car and wait for Anna to do the same. "'We walk up the front path, past the groomed flower beds, and through the front door. "'She is not the foe I've built her up to be. "'For one thing, Anna's mother is shorter than I am, and slighter. "'She has dark hair and haunted eyes and is pacing.' The moment it creaks open, she runs to Anna. For Christ's sake, she cries, shaking her daughter by the shoulders. Where have you been? Do you have any idea? Excuse me, Mrs. Fitzgerald, I'd like to introduce myself. I step forward, extending my hand. I'm Julia Romano, the guardian ad litem appointed by the court. She slides her arm around Anna, a stiff show of her tenderness. Thank you for bringing Anna home. I'm sure you have lots to discuss with her, but right now. Actually, I was hoping I could speak to you. I've been asked by the court to present my findings in less than a week, so if you've got a few minutes, I don't, Sarah says abruptly. Now isn't really a good time. My other daughter has just been readmitted to the hospital. She looks at Anna, still standing in the doorway of the kitchen. I hope you're happy. I'm sorry to hear that. I am too. Sarah clears her throat. "'I appreciate you coming by to talk to Anna, "'and I know you're just doing your job, "'but this is all going to work itself out, really. "'It's a misunderstanding. "'I'm sure Judge DeSalvo will be telling you that in a day or so.' "'She takes a step backward, challenging me, and Anna, to say otherwise. "'I glance at Anna, who catches my eye and shakes her head almost imperceptibly, "'a plea to just let this go for now. "'Who is she protecting, her mother or herself?' A red flag unravels across my mind. Anna is 13. Anna lives with her mother. Anna's mother is opposing counsel. How can Anna possibly live in the same home and not be swayed by Sarah Fitzgerald? Anna, I'll call you tomorrow. Then, without saying goodbye to Sarah Fitzgerald, I leave her house, headed for the one place on earth I never wanted to go. The law offices of Campbell Alexander look exactly the way I've pictured them. At the top of a building cast in black glass, at the end of a hallway lined with a Persian runner, through two heavy mahogany doors that keep out the riffraff, sitting at the massive receptionist desk is a girl with porcelain features and a telephone earpiece hidden under the mane of her hair. I ignore her and walk toward the only closed door. "'Hey!' she yells. "'You can't go in there!' "'He'll be expecting me,' I say." Campbell doesn't look up from whatever he's writing with great, with great fury. His shirt sleeves are rolled up to the elbow. He needs a haircut. Carrie, he says, see if you can f- you can find some Jenny Jones transcripts about identical twins who don't know that they- Hello, Campbell. First, he stops writing. Then, he lifts his head. Julia. He gets up to his feet. A schoolboy caught in an indecent act. I step inside and close the door behind me. I'm the guardian ad litem to Anna Fitzgerald's case. A dog that I haven't noticed till now takes his place by campus side. I'd heard that you went to law school, Harvard, on full scholarship. Providence is a pretty tight place. I kept expecting. His voice trails off, and he shakes his head. Well, I thought for sure we'd run into each other before now. He smiles at me, and I'm ins. I suddenly am 17 again. The year I realized love doesn't follow the rules. The year I understand understood that nothing is worth, more, is worth having so much as something unattainable. It's not all that hard to avoid someone when you want to, I answer coolly. You of all people should know. What time is it? 7.03. Which means I should probably get some dinner which means another break. Be back in a bit. Beep. Well, I have finished my dinner break, and let's continue. Campbell, I'm remarkably calm, really, until the principal of... Ponongaset High School starts to give me a telephone lecture on political correctness. For God's sake, he sputters. What kind of message does it send when a group of Native American students names their intramural basketball league the Whiteies? I imagine it sends the same message that you did when you picked the ch- chieftains as your sc- school mascot. We've been the Puna- Ponongaset chieftains since 1970. The principal argues, yes, and they've been members of the Set tribe since they were born. It's derogatory, and pridic- uh, Sorry, I dropped my bookmark. Politically incorrect. Unfortunately, I point out, you can't sue a person for political incorrectness, or clearly you would have been handed a summons years ago. However, on the flip side, the Constitution does protect various individual rights to Americans, including Native Americans, one for assembly and one for free speech, which suggests that the whiteys would be granted permission to convene, even if even if your ridiculous threat of a lawsuit managed to make its way to court. For that matter, you may want to consider a class action against Against humanity in general, since surely you'd also like to stifle the inherent racism implicit in the White House, the White Mountains, and the White Pages. There is dead silence on the other end of the phone. Shall I assume then that I can tell my client you don't plan to litigate after all? After he hangs up on me, I push the intercom button. Carrie, call Ernie Fishkiller and tell him he's got nothing to worry about. I just heard a child screaming. As I settled down to the mountain of work on my desk, judge lets out a sigh. He's asleep, curled like a braided rug to the left of my be- of my desk. His paw twitches. "That's alive," she said to me as we watched a puppy chase its own tail. "That's what I want to be next." I laughed. "You would wi- you would wind up as a cat," I told her. "They don't need anyone else. I need you," she replied. "Well," I said, "maybe I'll come back as catnip." I press my thumbs into the balls of my eyes. Clearly, I am not getting enough sleep. First, there was that moment at the coffee shop. Now this. I scowl at Judge, as if it is his fault, and then focus my attention on some notes I've made on a legal pad. New client. A drug dealer caught by the prosecution on videotape. There's no way out of a conviction on this one, unless a guy has an identical twin his mother kept secret. Which, come to think of it... The door opens, and without glancing up, I fire a directive at Carrie. See if you can find Jenny Jones' transcript about identical twins who don't know that they- Hello, Campbell. I'm going crazy. I am definitely going crazy, because not five feet away from me is Julia Romano, whom I have not seen in fifteen years. Her hair is longer now, and fine lines bracket her mouth, parentheses around a lifetime of words I was not around to hear. Julia... I manage. She closes the door, and at the sound, Judge jumps to his feet. I'm the guardian ad litem assigned to Anna Fitzgerald's case, she says. Providence is a pretty tight place. I kept expecting, well, I thought for sure we'd run into each other before now. It's not all that hard to avoid someone when you want to, she answers. You of all people should know. Then, all of a sudden, the anger seems to steam out of her. I'm sorry. That was totally uncalled for. It's been a long time, I reply. When? I reply, when what I really want to do is ask her what she's been doing for the past 15 years. If she still drinks tea with milk and lemon. If she's happy. Your hair isn't pink anymore, I say, because I'm an idiot. No, it's not, she replies. Is that a problem? I shrug. It's just, well... Where are words when you need them. I liked the pink, I confess. It tends to take away from my authority in a courtroom, Julia admits. This makes me smile. Since when do you care what people think of you? She doesn't respond, but something changes. The temperature of the room, or maybe the wall that comes up in her eyes. Maybe instead of dragging of the past, we should talk about Anna. She should uh, suggest diplomatically. I nod but it feels like we are sitting on the tight bench of a bus with a stranger between us, one that neither of us is willing to admit to or mention, and so we find ourselves talking around him and through him and sneaking glances when the other one isn't looking. How am I supposed to think about Anna Fitzgerald when I'm wondering whether Julia has ever woken up in someone's arms and for just a moment, before the sleep cleared from her, from her mind, thought maybe it was me? Sensing tension, Judge gets up and stands beside me. Julia seems to notice for the first time that we are not alone in the room. Your partner? Only an associate, I say. But he made law review. Her fingers scratch judge behind the ear. Goddamn lucky bastard. And grimacing, I ask her to stop. He is a service dog. He isn't supposed to be petted. Julia looks up, surprised. But before she can ask, I turn the conversation. So, Anna judge pushes his nose into my palm. She folds her arms. I went to see her. And? Thirteen-year-olds are heavily influenced by their parents, and Anna's mother seems convinced that this trial isn't going to happen. I have a feeling she might be trying to convince Anna of that, too. I can take care of that, I say. She looks up, suspicious. I'll get Sarah Fitzgerald removed from the house. Her jaw drops. You're kidding, right? By now... Judge has started pulling my clothes in earnest. When I don't respond, he barks twice. Well, I certainly don't think my client ought to be the one to move out. She hasn't violated the judge's orders. I'll get a temporary restraining order keeping Sarah Fitzgerald from having any contact from with her. Campbell, that's her mother! This week, she's opposing counsel, and if she's prejudicing my client in any way, she needs to be ordered not to do so. Your client has a name and an age and a world that's falling apart. The last thing she needs is more instability in her life. Have you even bothered to get to know her? Of course I have. I lie, as Judge begins to whine at my feet. Julia glances down at him. Is something wrong with your dog? He's fine. Look, my job is to protect Anna's legal rights and win the case, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. Of course you are. Not necessarily because it's in Anna's best interests, but because it's in yours. How ironic is it that a kid who wants to stop being used for another person's benefit winds up picking your name out of the yellow pages? You don't know anything about me, I say, my jaw tightening. So much for not- Well, whose fault is that? So much for not bringing up the past. A shudder runs the length of me, and I grab Judge by the collar. Excuse me. I say, and I walk out out the office door, leaving Julia for the second time in my life. When you get right down to it, the Wheeler School was a factory, pumping out debutantes and future investment bankers. We all looked alike and talked alike. To us, summer was a verb. There were students, of course, who broke that mold, like the scholarship kids who wore their collars up and learned to row, never realizing that all along we were well aware they weren't one of us. They were th- there were the stars like Tommy B- Boudreaux. Oh, that was the shittiest French accent. I'm so sorry. I'm not even gonna try with accent. Boudreaux. I'm just gonna speak American. America. Just kidding. I hate America. America sucks. He was drafted by the Detroit Red Wings in his junior year. What? Okay, then. I'm not going down right now because I'm in the middle of something. Shit. My mom texted me. Don't worry about it. I say as if you care. Who was drafted by the Detroit Red Wings in his junior year, or the head cases, who tried to slit their wrists or mix, wrists or mix booze and Valium and then left campus just as silently as they had once wandered around it. I was the sixth former the year that Julia Romano came to Wheeler. She wore army boots and a cheap trick t shirt under her school blazer. She was able to memorize entire sonnets without breaking a sweat. During free periods, while the rest of us were copping smokes behind the headmaster's back, she climbed the stairs to the ceiling of the gymnasium and sat with her back against the heating duct, reading books by Henry Miller and Nietzsche. I don't know how to pronounce that, so I'm going to spell it. N I E T Z. S C H E Unlike the other girls in school, with their smooth waterfalls of yellow hair caught up in a headband like ribbon candy, hers was an absolute tornado of black curls, and she never wore makeup. Just those sharp features, take it or leave it. She had the thinnest thinnest hoop I'd ever seen, a silver filament through her left eyebrow. She smelled like fresh dough rising. There were rumors about her, that she'd been booted out of a girls' reform school, that she was some whiz kid with a perfect PSAT score, that she was two years younger than everyone else in our grade, that she had a tattoo. Nobody quite knew what to make of her. They called her Freak, because she wasn't one of us. One day, Julia Romano arrived at school with short pink hair. We all assumed she'd be suspended, but it turned out that in the litany of rules about what one had to wear at Wheeler, coiffure was one specific. "'conspicuously absent. "'It made me wonder why there wasn't a single guy "'in the school with dreadlocks, "'and I realized it wasn't because we couldn't stand out. "'It's because we didn't want to. "'At lunch that day, she passed the table "'where I was sitting with a bunch of guys "'on the sailing team and some of their girlfriends. "'Hey,' one girl said. "'Did it hurt?' "'Julia slowed down. "'Did what hurt?' "'Falling into the candy... "'the cotton candy machine?' She didn't even blink. Sorry, I can't afford to get my hair done at Wash, Cotton Blow, Jobs, or Us. Then she walked off to the corner of the cafeteria where she always ate by herself, playing solitaire with a deck of cards that had pictures of patron saints on the back. Shit, one of my friends said. That's one girl I wouldn't mess with. I laughed because everyone else did. But I also watched her sit down, push the tray of food away from her, and begin to lay lay out her cards. I wondered what it would be like to not give a damn about what people thought of you. One afternoon, I went AWOL from the sailing team where where I was captain and followed her. I made sure to stay far enough behind that she wouldn't realize I was there. She headed down Blackstone Boulevard, turned into Swan Point Cemetery, and climbed to the highest point. She opened her knapsack, took out her textbooks and binder, and spread herself in front of a grave. "You might as well come out," she said. Then, and I nearly swallowed my tongue, expecting a ghost, until I realized she was talking to me. "If you pay an extra quarter, you can even stare up close." I stepped out. I stepped out from behind a big oak. My hands dug into my pockets. Now that I was there, I had no idea why I had come. I nodded toward the grave. "That a relative?" She looked over her shoulder. Yeah, my grandma had the seat right next to him on the Mayflower. She stared at me, all right angles and edges. Don't you have some cricket match to go to? Polo, I said, breaking a smile. I'm just waiting for my horse to get here. She didn't get the joke, or maybe she didn't find it funny. What do you want? I couldn't admit that I was following her. Help, I said. Homework. In truth, I had not looked over our English assignment. I grabbed a paper on top of her binder and read aloud, You come across a horrible four-car accident. There are people moaning in pain, and bodies strewn all over the place. Do you have an obligation to stop? Why should I help? she said. Well, legally, you shouldn't. If you pull someone out and hurt them more, you could get sued. I meant why should I help you? The paper floated to the ground. You don't think very much of me, do you? "'I don't think about any of you, period. "'You're a bunch of superficial idiots "'who wouldn't be caught dead "'with someone who's different from you. "'Isn't that what you're doing, too?' "'She stared at me for a long second. "'Then she started stuffing her backpack. "'You've got a trust fund, right? "'If you need help, go pay a tutor.' "'I put my foot down on top of a textbook. "'Would you do it?' "'Tutor you.' "'Tutor you?' "'No way. "'Stop. "'At the car accident.' Her hands quieted. Yeah, because even if the law says that no one is responsible for anybody else, for anyone else, helping someone who needs it is the right thing to do. I sat down beside her, close enough that the skin of her arm hummed Hummed. Close enough that the skin of her arm hummed right next to mine. You really believe that? She looked down at her lap. Yeah. Then how? I asked. Can you walk away from me? Afterward, I wipe my face with paper towels from the dispenser and fix my tie. Judge pads in tight circles behind beside me, the way he always does. You did good, I tell him, patting the thick ruff of his neck. When I get back into my office, Julia is gone. Carrie sits at the computer in a rare moment of productivity, typing. She said that if you needed her, you could damn well come find her. Her words... Not mine. And she asked for all the medical records. Carrie glances over her shoulders at me. You look like shit. Thanks. An orange posted on her desk catches my attention. Is this where, sh- Is this where she wants the records sent? Yeah. I slip the address into my pocket. I'll take care of it, I say. A week later, in front of the same grave, I unlaced Julia Romano's combat boots. I'm deadass, get out of my room. I am busy, I have a lot to read. I already ate. Uh, Bye. That was my sibling. A week later, in front of the same grave, I unlaced Julia Romano's combat boots. I peeled away her camouflage jacket. Her feet were narrow and as pink as the inside of a tulip. Her collarbone was a mystery. Sorry, thought I heard someone... I knew you were beautiful under there, I said, and this was the first spot on her that I kissed. The Fitzgeralds live in Upper Darby, in a house that could belong to any typical American family. Two-car garage, aluminum siding, top finder stickers in the windows for the fire department. By the time I get there, the sun is setting behind the roof line. The whole drive over, I've tried to convince myself that what Julia said has absolutely no bearing on why I've decided to visit my client. That I was always planning to take this little detour before I headed home for the night. But the truth is, in all the years I've been practicing, this is the first time I've paid a house call. Anna opens the door when I ring the bell. What are you doing here? Checking up on you? Does that cost extra? No, I say dryly. It's part of a special program I'm doing this month. Oh, she crosses her arms. Have you talked to my mother? I'm trying my best not to. I assume she's not home? Anna shakes her head. We're dying again. Oh, no. Anna Anna shakes her head. She's at the hospital. Kate got admitted again. I thought you might have gone over there. Kate's not my client. This actually seems to disappoint her. She tucks her hair behind her ears. Did you, like, want to come in? I follow her into the living room and sit down on the couch. A palette of cherry, of cheery blue stripes. Judge sniffs the edges of the furniture. I heard you met the guardian at Julia, she took me to the zoo. She seems all right. Her eyes dart to mine. Did she say something about me? She's worried that your mother might be talking to you about this case. Other than Kate, Anna says. What else is there to talk about? We stare at each other for a moment. Beyond a client-attorney relationship, I am at a loss. I could ask to see her room, except that there's no way in hell any male defense attorney would ever go upstairs alone with a 13-year-old girl. I could take her out to dinner, but I doubt she'd appreciate cafe noovo nu- Nuovo? Nuovo? I don't know. N-U- O-V-O. One of my favorite haunts, and I don't think I could stop. I could stomach a whopper. I could ask her about school, but it isn't in, se- isn't in session. Do you have kids? Anna asks. I laugh. What do you think? It's probably a good thing, she admits. No offense, but you don't exactly look like a parent. That fascinates me. What do parents look like? She seems to think about this. You know how the tightrope guy at the circus wants everyone to believe his act is an art, but deep down you can see that he's really just hoping he makes it all the way across? Like that. She glances at me. You can relax, you know. I'm not going to tie you up and make you listen to gangster rap. Oh, well, I joke. In that case, I loosen my tie and sit back on the pillows. It makes a a smile dart briefly across her face. You don't have to pretend to be my friend or anything. I don't want to pretend, I run my hand through my hair. The thing is, this is new to me. What is? I gesture around the living room. Visiting a client, shooting the breeze, not leaving a case at case at the office at the end of the day. Well, this is new to me, too. Hang on, hang on, got to fix that pacing. Well, this is new to me, too. Anna confesses, what is? She twists a strand of hair around her pinky, hoping she says. The part of town where Julia's apartment is located is an upscale area with a reputation for divorced bachelors, a point that irritates me the whole time I am trying to find a parking lot. Then the doorman takes one look at Judge and bars my path. No dogs allowed, he says. Sorry. This is a service dog. When that doesn't seem to ring a bell, I spell it out for him. You know, like seeing eye. You don't look blind, I'm a recovering alcoholic, I tell him. The dog gets between me and a beer. Julia's apartment is on the seventh floor. I knock on her door and then see an eye checking me out through the peephole. She opens it a crack, but leaves a chain in place. She has a kerchief wrapped around her head, and she looks like she's been crying. Hi, I say. Can we start over? Oh! (laughs) Ha ha ha. Sorry. I just realized what's going to happen just now. She wipes her nose. Who the hell are you? Okay. Maybe I deserve that. I glance at the chain. Let me in, will you? She gives me a look, like I'm crazy or something. Are you on crack? There's a scuffle and another voice, and then the door opens wide and stupidly I think, there are two of her. Campbell, the real Julia says. What are you doing here? I hold up the medical records, still getting over the shock. How the hell is it that she never managed to mention that entire year at Wheeler having a twin? Izzy, this is Campbell Alexander. Campbell, this is my sister. Campbell. Campbell. I watch Izzy turn my name over on her tongue. At a second glance, she really looks nothing like Julia at all. Her nose is a bit longer, her complexion not nearly the same shade of gold. Not to mention the fact that watching her mouth move doesn't make me hard. (gasps) What the fuck? Why? Oh my god. How dare you put the horny in this book? I COMPLETELY forgot about this. Ugh. Not THE Campbell, she says, turning to Julia, from- Yeah, she sighs. Izzy's gaze narrows. I knew I shouldn't let him in. It's fine, Julia insists, and she takes the files from me. Thanks for bringing these. Izzy waggles her fingers. You can leave now. Stop. Julia swats her sister's arm. Campbell is the attorney I'm working with this week. Well, wasn't he the guy who- Yes. Thanks. I have a fully functioning memory. So, I interrupt. I stopped off at Anna's house. Julia turns to me. And? Earth to Julia, Izzy says. This is self-destructive behavior. Not when it involves a paycheck, Izzy. We have a case together. That's it, okay? And I really don't feel like being lectured by you about self-destructing behavior. Who called Janet for a mercy fuck the night after she dumped you? Hey, I turn to Judge. How about those red socks? Izzy stamps down the hall. It's your suicide, she yells, and then I hear a door slam. I think she really likes me, I say, but Julia doesn't crack a smile. Thanks for the medical records. Bye. Julia, hey, I'm just saving you the trouble. It must have been hard training a dog to drag you out of a room when you need rescu- rescuing from some emotionally volatile situation. Like an old girlfriend who's telling the truth. How does it work, Campbell? Hand signals? Word commands? A high-pitched whistle? i look wistfully down the, down the empty hallway. Can I have Izzy back instead? Julia tries to push me out the door. All right, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off today in the office, but it was an emergency. She stares at me. What did you say the dog's for? I didn't. When she turns, Josh and I follow her deeper into the apartment, closing the door behind us. So I went to see Anna Fitzgerald. You were right. Before I took out a restraining order against her mother, I needed to talk to her. And? I think back to the two of us sitting on that striped couch, stretching a web of trust between us. I think we're on the same page. Julia doesn't respond, just picks up a glass of white wine on the kitchen counter. Why, yes, I'd love some, I say. She shrugs. It's in Smilla. The fridge, of course, for its sense of snow. When I walk there and take out the bottle, I can feel her trying not to smile. You forget that I know you. New, she corrects. And educate me. What have you been doing for 15 years? I nod down the hallway toward Izzy's room. I mean, other than cloning yourself. A thought occurs to me, and before I can even voice it, Julie answers. My brothers all became builders and chefs and plumbers. My parents wanted their girls to go to college, and figured attending Wheeler's senior senior year might stack the odds. I had good enough grades to get a partial scholarship there. Izzy didn't. My parents could only afford to send one of us to private school. Did she go to college? R.I.S.D., Julia says. She's a jewelry designer. A hostile jewelry designer. Having your heart broken can do that. Our eyes meet, and Julia realizes what she said. She just moved in today. My eyes canvassed the apartment, looking for a hockey stick, a sports illustrated magazine, a lazy boy chair, anything telltale and male. Is it hard getting used to a roommate? I was living alone before, Campbell, if that's what you're asking. She looks at me over the edge of her wine glass. How about about you? I have six wives, 15 children, and an assortment of sheep. Her lips curve. People like you always make me feel like I'm underachieving. Oh, yeah. You're a real waste of space on the planet. Harvard undergrad, hum- Harvard Law, a bleeding heart guardian ad litem. How do you know where I went to law school? Judge all though. I lie, and she buys it. I wonder if Julia feels like it has been moments, not years, since we've been together. If sitting at this counter with me feels as effortless for her as it does for me. It's like picking up an unfamiliar piece of sheet music and starting to stumble through it, only to realize it is a melody you'd once learned by heart, one you can play without even trying. I didn't think you'd become a guardian ad litem, I admit. Neither did I, Julia smiles. I still have moments where I fantasize about standing on a soapbox in Boston Common, railing against the patriarchal society. Unfortunately, you can't pay a landlord in dogma. She glances at me. Of course, I also mistakenly believed you'd be President of the United States by now. I inhaled, I confess. Had to set my sights a little lower. And you? Well, actually, I figured you'd be living in the suburbs, doing the soccer mom things with a bunch of kids and some lucky guy. Julia shakes her head. I think you're confusing me with Muffy or Bitsy or Toto or whatever the hell the names of the girls in Wheeler were. No, I just thought that... "'then I might be the guy.' "'There is a thick, vicious silence. Viscous "'Silence. "'You didn't want to be that guy,' "'Julia says finally. "'You made that pretty clear.' "'That's not true,' I want to argue. "'But how else would it look to her "'when afterward I wanted nothing else— "'I wanted nothing to do with her. "'When afterward I acted just like everyone else. "'Do you remember—' "'I begin. "'I remember everything, Campbell.' She interrupts. If I didn't, this wouldn't be so hard. My pulse jumps so high that Judge gets to his feet and pushes his snout into my hip, alarmed. I had believed back then that nothing could hurt Julia, who seemed to be so free. I had hoped that I could be as lucky. I was mistaken on both counts. Oh, shoot. Anna. In our living room, we have a whole shelf devoted to the visual history of our family. Everyone's baby pictures are there, and some school headshots, and then various photos from vacations and birthdays and holidays. They make me think of notches on a bell or scratches on a prison wall. Proof that time's passed. Now, we haven't all just been swimming in limbo. There are double frames, singles, 8x10s, 4x6s. They are made of blonde wood and... in. In and one very fancy glass mosaic. I pick up one of Jesse. He's about two in a cowboy costume. Looking at it, you'd never know what was coming down the pike. There's Kate with hair and Kate all bald. One of Kate is a baby sitting on Jesse's lap. One of my, one of my mother holding each of them on the edge of the, of a pool. There are pictures of me too, but not many. I go from infant to ten, to about ten years old in one fell sl- swoop. Maybe it's because I was the third child, and they were sick and tired of keeping a catalog of life. Maybe it's because they forgot. It's nobody's fault, and it's not a big deal. But it's a little depressing all the same. A photo says, you were happy, and I wanted to catch that. A photo says, you were so important to me that I put down everything else to come watch. My father calls at 11 o'clock to ask if I want him to come get me. Mom's going to stay at the hospital, he explains, but if you don't want to be alone in the house, you can sleep at the station. No, it's okay, I tell him. I can always get Jessie if I need something. Right, my father says. "Jessie, We both pretend that this is a reliable backup plan. How's Kate, I ask. Still pretty out of it. They've got her drugged up. I hear him drag in a breath. You know, Anna... He begins, but then there is a shrill bell in the background. Honey, I've got to go. He leaves me with an earful of dead air. For a second, I just hold the phone, picturing my dad stepping into his boots and pulling up the puddle of pants by their suspenders. I, Im- I imagine the door of the station yawning like Aladdin's cave and the engine screaming out. My father in the front passenger seat. Every time he goes to work, he has to put out fires. It's just the encouragement I need. Grabbing a sweater, I leave the house and head for the garage. There was this kid in my school, Jimmy Streadbow, He used to be a total loser. He got zits on top of his zits. He had a pet rat named Orphan Annie. And once in science class, he puked into the fish tank. No one ever talked to him, in, ta- in case Dor was contagious. But then one summer, he was diagnosed with MS. After that, no one was mean to Jimmy anymore. If you passed him in the hall, he smiled. If he sat next to you at the lunch table, you nodded hello. It was as if being a walking tragedy canceled out, ever having been a geek. From the moment I was born, I have been the girl with a sick sister. All my life, bank tellers have given me actual lollipops. Principals have known me by name. No one is ever outright mean to me. It makes me wonder how I'd be treated if I were like everyone else. Maybe I'm a pretty rotten person, not that anyone... would would ever have the guts to tell me this to my face. Maybe everyone thinks I'm rude or ugly or stupid. They have to be nice because it could be the circumstances of my life that make me that way. It makes me wonder if what I'm doing now is just my true nature. The headlights of another car bounce off the rearview mirror, lighting up like green goggles around Jesse's eyes. He drives with one wrist on the wheel. Lazy. He needs a haircut, in a big way. Your car smells like smoke. I say. Yeah, but it covers the aroma of spilled whiskey. His teeth flash in the dark. Why? Is it bothering you? Kind of. Jesse reaches across my body to the glove compartment. He takes out a pack of Merits and a Zippo, lights up, and blows smoke in my direction. Sorry, he says, though he isn't. Can I have one? One what? A cigarette. They're so white, they seem to glow. You want a cigarette. Jesse cracks up. I'm not joking, I say. Jesse raises one brow and then turns the wheel so sharply I think he might roll the Jeep. He wind- We wind up in a huff of road dust on the shoulder. Jesse turns on the interior lights and shakes the pack so that one cigarette shimmies out. It feels too delicate between my fingers, like the fine bone of a bird. I hold it the way I think a drama queen ought to, between the vice of my second and middle fingers. It, I put it up to my lips. You have to light it first, Jesse laughs, and he sparks up the Zippo. There's no freaking way I'm leaning into the flame. Chances are I'll set my hair on fire instead of the cigarette. You do it for me, I say. Nope. If you're going to learn, you're going to learn it all. He flicks the lighter again. I touch the cigarette to the burn. Suck in the way... Suck in hard the way I've seen Jesse do. It makes my chest explode. And I cough so forcefully that for a minute I actually believe I can taste my lung at the base of my throat. Pink and spongy. Jesse goes to pieces and plucks the cigarette out of my hand before I drop it. He takes two long drags and then tosses it out out the window. Nice try, he says. My voice is a sandpit. It's like licking a barbecue. While I work on remembering how to breathe, Jesse pulls into the road again. What made you want to? I shrug. I figured as m- I might as well. If you'd like a checklist of depravity, I can make one up for you. When I don't reply, he glances over at me. Anna, he says, you're not doing the wrong thing. By now, he's pulled into the hospital parking lot. I'm not doing the right thing either. I point out. He turns off the ignition, but doesn't make a, an attempt to leave the car. Have you thought about the dragon guarding the cave? I narrow my eyes. Speak English. Well, I'm guessing Mom's asleep about five feet away from Kate. Oh, shit. It is not that I think my mother would throw me out, but she sure certainly won't leave me alone with Kate. And right now, that's what I want more than anything. Jesse looks at me. Seeing Kate isn't going to make you feel better. There's really no way to explain why I need to know that she's okay. At least now, even though I have taken steps that will put an end to that. For once, though, someone seems to understand. Jesse stares out the window at the car. Leave it to me, he says. We were 11 and 14, and we were training for the Guinness Book of World Records. Surely there had never been two sisters who did simultaneous headstands for so long that their cheeks went hard as plums, and their their eyes saw nothing but red. Kate had the shape of a pixie, all noodle arms and legs. And when she bent to the ground and kicked up her feet, it looked as delicate as a spider walking a wall. Me, I sort of defied gravity with a thud. We balanced in silence for a few seconds. I wish my head was flatter, I said, as I felt my eyebrows scrunch down. Do you think there's a man who will come to the house to time us, or do we just mail a, t- or do we just mail a videotape? I guess they'll let us know. Kate folded her arms along the carpet. Do you think we'll be famous? We might get on the Today Show. They had that 11-year-old kid who could play the piano with his feet. She thought for a second. Mom knew someone who got killed by a piano falling out a window. That's not true. Why would anyone push a piano out a window? It is true. You ask her. And they weren't taking it out. They were putting it in. She crossed her legs against the wall so that it looked like she was sitting upside. She was just sitting upside down. What do you, th- what do you think is the best way to die? I don't want to talk about this. I said, "Why? I'm dying. You're dying." When I frowned, she said, "Well, you are." Then she grinned. I just happen to be more gifted at it than you are. This is a stupid conversation. Already, it was making my skin itch in places I knew I would never be able to scratch. Maybe an airplane crash, Kate mused. It would suck, you know, when you realized you were going down. But then it happens and you're just powder. How come how come people get vaporized but there's but they still manage to find clothes and trees and those black boxes? By now my head was starting to pound. Shut up, Kate. She crawled down the wall and sat up, flushed. They're just sleeping through it as you croak. But that's kind of boring. Shut up, I repeated, angry that we had only lasted about 22 seconds. Angry that now we were going to have to try for a record all over again. I tipped myself sunny side up again and tried to clear the knot of hair out of my face. You know, normal people don't sit around thinking about dying. Liar. Everyone thinks about dying. Everyone thinks about you dying, I said. The room went so still that I wondered if we ought to go for a different record. How long can two sisters hold their breath? (coughs) Sorry. Then a twitchy smile crossed her face. "'Well,' Kate said, "'at least now you're telling the truth.' "'Jesse gives me a $20 bill for a cab fare home, because that's the only hitch in his plan.' Once we go through with this, he isn't going to be driving back. We take the stairs up to the eighth floor instead of the elevator, because they let us out behind the nurse's nurse's station, not in front of it. Then he tucks me inside a linen closet filled with plastic pillows and sheets stamped with the hospital's name. Wait, I blurt out when he's about to leave me. How am I going to know when it's time? He starts to laugh. You'll know. Trust me. He takes a silver flask out of his pocket. It's what my father got from the chief and thinks he lost three years ago. Screws off the cap and pours whiskey all over the front of his shirt. Then he starts to walk down the hall. Well, walk would be a loose approximation. Jesse slams like a billiard ball into the walls and knocks over an entire cleaning cart. Ma, he yells out. "out, Ma, where are you? He isn't drunk, but he sure as hell can do a great imitation. It makes me wonder about the times I have looked out my bedroom window in the middle of the night and seen him puking into the rhododendrons. Maybe that was all for show, too. The nurses swarm out from their hive of a desk, trying to subdue a boy half their age and three times as strong, who at that very moment grabs the uppermost tier of a linen rack and pulls it forward, making a crash so loud it rings in my ears. Call call buttons start ringing like an operator switch behind the nurse's desk, but all three of the night duty ladies are doing their best to hold Jesse down while he- while he kicks and flails, the door to Kate's room opens, and bleary-eyed, my mother steps out. She takes a look at Jesse, and for a second her whole face is frozen with the realization that, in fact, things can get worse. Jesse swings his head toward her, a great big bowl, and his features melt. Hiya, Mom, he greets, and he smiles and he smiles loosely up at her. I am so sorry, my mother says to the nurses. She closes her eyes as Jesse stumbles upright and throws his sloppy arms around her. There's coffee in the cafeteria. one nurse suggests. My mother is too embarrassed to even answer her. She just moves toward the elevator banks with Jessie attached to her like a muscle on a crusty hole on a crusty hole and pushes down the bu- pushes the down button over and over in the fruitless hope that it will actually make the doors open faster when they leave. It is almost too easy. some of the nurses hurry off to check on the patients who've rung in. others settle back behind their desks trading hushed commentary about Jessie and my poor mother like it's some card game. They never look my way as I sneak out of the linen closet, tiptoe down the hall, and let myself into my sister's hospital room. One Thanksgiving when Kate was not in the hospital, we actually pretended to be a regular family. We watched the parade on TV, where a giant balloon fell prey to a freak wind and wound up wrapped around in the- in the, a New York City traffic light. We made our own gravy. My mother, bought, my mother brought the turkey's wishbone out to the table, and we fought over who would, who would be granted the right to snap it. Kate and I were given the honors. Before I got a good grip, my mother leaned closed and whispered into my ear, You know what to wish for. So I shut my eyes tight and thought hard of a permission for Kate, even though I had been planning to ask for a personal CD player and got a nasty satisfaction out of the fact that I did not win the, t- the tug of war. After we ate, my father took us outside for a game of two-on-two touch football while my mother was washing the dishes. She came outside when Jesse and I had already scored twice. Tell me, she said, that I am hallucinating. She didn't have to say anything else. We'd all seen Kate tumble like an ordinary kid and wind up bleeding uncontrollably like a sick one. Aw, Sarah. My dad turned up the wattage of a smile. Kate's on my team. I won't let her get sacked. He swaggered over to my mother and kissed her so long and slow that my own cheeks started to burn because I was sure the neighbors would see. When he lifted his head, my mother's eyes were a color I'd never seen before and don't think I have ever seen again. Trust me, he said, and then he threw the football to Kate. What I remember about that day was the way the ground bit back when he sat on it, the first hint of winter. I remember being tackled by my father, who always braced himself in a push up so that I got none of the weight and all of his heat. I remember my mother cheering equally for both teams, and I remember throwing the ball back to Jesse, but Kate getting in the way, an expression of absolute shock on her face as it landed in the cradle of her arms, and Dad yelled her on to the touchdown. She sprinted and nearly had it, but then Jesse took a running leap and slammed her to the ground, crushing her underneath him. In that moment everything stopped. Kate lay with her arms and legs splayed, unmoving. My father was there in a breath, shoving at Jessie. What the hell is the matter with you? I forgot. My mother, where does it hurt? Can you sit up? But when Kate rolled over, she was smiling. It doesn't hurt. It feels great. My parents looked at each other. Neither of them stood like I did, understood like I did, like Jessie did. That no matter who you are, there is some part of you that always wishes you were someone else. And when for a millisecond you get that wish, it's a miracle. He forgot, Kate said to nobody, and she lay on her back, beaming up at the cold Hawkeye sun. Hospital rooms never get completely dark. There was always some glowing panel behind the bed, in the case of a a catastrophe. A runway strip so that the nurses and doctors can find their way. I've seen Kate a hundred times in beds like this one, although the tubes and wires change. She always looks smaller than I remember. I sit down as gently as I can. The veins on Kate's neck and chest are a road map. Highways that don't go anywhere. I trick myself into believing that I can see those rogue leukemia cells moving like a rumor through her system. "'When she opens her eyes, I nearly fall off the bed. "'It's an exorcist moment. "'Anna?' she says, staring right at me. "'I've not seen her look this scared since we were little, "'and Jesse convinced us that an old Indian ghost "'had come back to claim the bones buried by mistake under our house. "'If you have a sister and she dies, do you stop saying you have one? "'Or are you always a sister?' even when the other half of the equation is gone. I crawl onto the bed, which is narrow, but still big enough for both of us. I rest my head on her chest, so close to her central line that I can see the liquid dripping into her. Jesse is wrong. I didn't come to see Kate because it would make me feel better. I came because without her, it's hard to remember who I am. Gonna take another quick break because my throat is dying again. I took that vocal break and I have returned returned. My voice still hurts, like throat still hurts. But like I need to get through this and then I still have more reading to do after I finish this episode. Thursday. You, if you were sensible, when I tell you the star's flash signals, each one dreadful, you would not turn and answer me. The night is wonderful. D. H. Lawrence, Under the Oak. Brian. Brian! I'm sorry, I forgot that Brian was the dad, so it just—it was just funny to suddenly read Brian. We never know, at first, if we are headed into a cooker or a smudge. At 2.46 a.m. last night, the lights went on upstairs. The bells went off, too, but I can't say that I ever really hear them. In ten seconds, I was- Sorry. Itchy. I was dressed and walking out the door of my room at the station. In twenty, I was stepping into my turnout gear, pulling up the long elastic suspenders suspenders, and shrugging into my turtle shell coat. By the time two minutes passed, Caesar was driving the engine onto the streets of Upper Darby. Polly and Red were the canned man canned man and the hydrant man, riding behind. Sometime after that, consciousness came in small bright flashes. We remembered to check our breathing apparatus. We slid on our gloves. Dispatch called to tell us the house was on Hoddington Drive. That it appeared to be either a structure fire or a room and contents fire. Turn left here, I told Caesar. Hoddington was only eight blocks away from where I lived. The house looked like the mouth of a dragon. Caesar drived around as far as as far as he could, trying to get me a view of three sides. Then we all piled out of the engine and stared for a moment, four Davids against a Goliath. Charge a two-and-a-half-inch line, I told Caesar. Tonight's motor pump operator. A woman in a nightgown ran toward me, sobbing. Three children holding her skirt. Mija, she screamed, pointing. Mija, ¿dónde está? I got right in front of her, so that she couldn't see anything but my face. ¿Cuántos años tiene? She pointed to a window on the second floor. tres That was so shitty, I'm sorry. She cried. Cap. Caesar, Caesar yelled. We're ready over here. I heard the approaching whine of a second engine. The reserve guys coming, uh, coming to back us up. Red, bent the northeast corner of the roof. Polly, put the wet stuff on the red stuff and push it out when it's got, when it's got somewhere to go. We've got a kid on the second floor. I'm going in to see if I can get her. It was not like in movies, a slam dunk, a scene for the hero to go win his Oscar. If I got in there, and the stairs had gone, if the structure threatened to collapse, if the temperature of the space had gone in so hot that everything was combustible and ripe for flashover, I would have backed out and told my men to back out with me. The safety of the rescuer is of a higher priority than the safety of the victim. Always. I'm a coward. There are times when my shift is over that I'll stay and roll hose or put on a... F- or put on... little. Or put on a fresh pot of coffee for the crew coming in, instead of heading straight to my house. I have often wondered why I get more rest in a place where, for the most part, I'm roused out of bed two or three times a night. I think it is because in a firehouse, I don't have to worry about emergencies happening. They're supposed to. The minute I walk through the door at home, I'm worrying about what might come next. Once, in second grade, Kate drew a picture of a firefighter with a halo above his helmet. She told her class that I would only be allowed to go to heaven, because if I went to hell, i put out all the fires. I still have that picture. In a bowl, I crack a dozen eggs and start to whip them into a frenzy. The bacon's already spinning on the stove. The griddle's heating for pancakes. Fire many together, or at least we try to, before the bells ring. This breakfast will be a treat for my guys, who are still showering away the memories of last night from their skin. Behind me, I hear the fall of footsteps. Pull up a chair, I call over my shoulder. It's almost ready. Oh, thanks, but no, says a female voice. I wouldn't want to impose. I turn around, brandishing my spatula. The sound of a woman here is surprising. One who's grown up just shy of 7 a.m. is even more remarkable. She is small, with wild hair that makes me think of a forest fire. Her, her hands are covered with winking silver rings. Captain Fitzgerald, I'm Julia Romano. and the guardian ad litem assigned to Anna's case. Sarah's told me about her, the woman the judge will listen to when push comes to shove. Smells great, she says, smiling. She walks up and takes a spatula out of my hand. I can't watch someone cook without helping. It's a genetic abnormality. I watch her reach into the fridge, rummaging about, rummaging around. Of all things, she comes back with a jar of horseradish. I was hoping you might have a few minutes to talk. Sure. Horseradish? She adds a good wad of the stuff to the eggs and then sprinkles orange zest off the spice rack, along with some chili powder, and sprinkles this on as well. How's Kate doing? I pour a circle of batter on the griddle, watch it come to a bubble. When I flip it, it's an even, creamy brown. I've already spoken to Sarah this morning. Kate's night was uneventful. Sarah's wasn't, but that's because of Jesse. There's a moment during a structure fire when you- "'when you know you are either going to get the upper hand "'or that it's going to get the upper hand on you. "'You notice the ceiling patch about to fall "'and the staircase eating itself alive "'and the synthetic carpet glued to the soles of your boots. "'The sum of the parts overwhelms, "'and that's when you back out and force yourself to remember "'that every fire will burn itself out, even without your help. "'These days, I'm finding fire on six sides. "'I look in front of me and see Kate sick. "'I look behind me and see Anna with her lawyer.' The only time Jesse isn't drinking like a fish, he's strung out on drugs. Sarah's grasping at straws. In me, I've got my gear on. Safe. I'm holding dozens of hooks and irons and poles. All tools that are meant to destroy. When what I need is something to rope us together. Captain Fitzgerald! Brian! Julia Romano's voice knocks me out of my own head into a f- kitchen that's rapidly filling with smoke. She reaches past me and shoves the pancakes that's the pancake that's burning off the griddle. Jesus! I drop the charcoal disc that used to be a pancake into the sink where it hisses at me. I'm sorry. Like open sesame, those two simple words change the landscape. Good thing we've got the eggs, Julio Romana says. In a burning house, your sixth sense kicks in. You can't see, because of the smoke. You can't hear, because fire roars loud. You can't touch, because it will be the end of you. In front of me, Polly manned the nozzle. A line of firefighters backed him up. A charged hose was a thick, dead weight. We worked our way up the stairs, still intact, intent on shoving this fire out the hole red had put in the roof. Like anything that's confined, fire has a natural instinct to escape. "'I got down on my hands and knees "'and started to crawl through the hallway. "'The mother said it was the third door on the left. "'The fire rolled along the other, the other side of the ceiling, "'racing to the vent. "'As the fire spray attacked, "'white steam swallowed the other firefighters. "'The door to the child's room was open. "'I crawled in, calling her name.' A larger shape at the w- at the window drew me like a magnet but it turned out to be an oversized stuffed animal. I checked the closets and under the bed too, but nobody was there. I backed into the hallway again and nearly tripped over the hose, fist-thick. A human could, a human could think a fire couldn't. A fire would follow a specific path. A child might not. Where would I have gone if I were terrified? Moving fast, I started poking my head into doorways. One was pink, a baby's room. Another had matchbox cars all over the floor and bunk beds. One was not a room at all, but a closet. The master bedroom was on the far side of the staircase. If I were a kid, I'd want my mother. Unlike the other bedrooms, this one was leaking thick, black smoke. Fire had burned a seam at the bottom of the door. I opened it. "'knowing I was going to let in air, "'knowing it was the wrong thing to do "'and the only choice I had. "'Predictably, the smoldering line ignited, "'flame filling the doorway. "'I charged through it like a bull, "'feeling embers rain down the back of my helmet and coat. "'Luisa!' I yelled out. I felt my, "'I felt my way around the perimeter of the room, "'found the closet. "'I knocked hard and called again. "'It was faint, but there was definitely a knock back. "'We've been lucky.' I tell Julia Romano, quite possibly the last word she'd ever expect me to hear me say. Sarah's sister watches the kids if it's going to be a long haul. For shorter runs, we swap off. You know, Sarah stays with Kate one night at the hospital, and I go home to the other kids, or vice versa. It's easier now. They're old enough to take care of themselves. She writes something down in her little book when I say that, and it makes me squirm in my seat. Anna's only 13. Is that too young to stay alone in a house? Social services might say so, but Anna's different. Anna grew up years ago. Do you think Anna's doing okay? Julia asks. I don't think she would have filed a lawsuit if she was. I hesitate. Sarah says she wants attention. What do you think? To buy time, I take a fork full of eggs. The horseradish turned out to be surprisingly good. It brings out the orange. I tell Julie Romana this. she folds her napkin down she folds her napkin next to her own plate. You didn't answer my question, Mr. Fitzgerald. I don't think it's that simple. I very carefully set my silverware down. Do you have brothers or sisters? both six older brothers and a twin sister. I whistle, Your parents must have a hell of a lot of patience. She shrugs, Good Catholics. I don't know how they did it either, but none of us fell through the cracks. "'Did you always think so?' I ask. "'Did you ever feel, when you were a kid, that maybe they were playing favorites?' "'Her face tightens, just the tiniest bit, and I feel bad about putting her on the spot. "'We all know you're supposed to love your kids equal, but that's not always how it works works out.' "'I get to my feet. You got a little extra time? There's someone I'd like you to meet. "'Last winter, we got an ambulance call in the dead of winter for a guy who lived up a rural road.' The contractor he hired to plow his driveway had found him and called 911. Apparently, the guy had gotten out of his car the night before, slipped, and froze right to the gravel. The contractor nearly ran over him, thinking he was adrift. When we got to the scene, he had been outside for nearly eight hours, and he was nothing more than an ice cube with no pulse. His knees were bent. I remember this, because when we finally pried him out and set him him on a backboard, there they were. "'sticking straight up in the air. "'We got the heat cranked in the ambulance "'and brought him inside, starting to cut off his clothes. "'By the time we had our paperwork in in order "'for the hospital transport, "'the guy was sitting up and talking to us. "'I'll tell you this to show you that, "'in spite of what you would think, miracles happen. "'It's a cliché, but the reason I became a firefighter in the first place was because I wanted to save people. So the moment I emerged from the fiery arch doorway with Louisa in my arms when her mother first saw us and fell to her knees, I knew I had done my job and done it well. She swooped down beside the EMT from the second crew who got in li- who got a in line into the girl's arm and put her on oxygen. The kid was coughing, frightened, but she would be fine. The fire was all but out. the boys were doing were inside doing salvage and overhaul. "'Smoke drew a veil over the night sky. "'I couldn't make out a single star in the constellation Scorpio. "'I took off my gloves and wiped my hands across my eyes, "'which would sting for hours. "'Good work,' I said to Red, as he packed up the hose. "'Good save, Cap,' he called back. "'It would have been better, of course, "'if Louisa had been in her own room, as her mother expected. "'The kids don't stay where they're supposed to. "'You turn around and find her not in the bedroom, "'but hiding in a closet. "'You turn around and see she's not three, but thirteen. Parenting is really just a matter of tracking, of hoping your kids do not get so far ahead you can no longer see their next moves. I took off my helmet and stretched the muscles of my neck. I looked up at the structure that was once a home. Suddenly, I felt fingers wrap around my hand. The woman who who lived here, stood with tears in her eyes. Her youngest was still in her arms. The other kids were sitting in the fire truck under red supervision. Silently, she raised my knuckles to her lips. A streak of soot came off my jacket to stripe her cheek. You're welcome, I said. On our way back to the station, I directed Caesar the long way so that we passed right down the street where I live. Jessie's Jeep sat in the driveway. The lights in the house were all off. I pictured Anna with the covers pulled up to her chin like usual. Kate's bed, empty. We all set, Fitz? Caesar asked. The truck was barely crawling, almost stopped directly in front of my driveway. Yeah, we're set, I said. Let's take it on home. I became a firefighter because I wanted to save people. But I should have been more specific. I should have named names. Julia. Brian Fitzgerald's car is filled with stars. There are charts on the passenger seat and tables jammed into the console between us. The back seat is a p- parcel for Xerox copies of Nebulae and Planets. Sorry, he says, reddening, I wasn't expecting company. I help him clear off a space for me, and then the process pick up a map ma- made of pinpricks. What's this? I ask. A Sky Atlas, he shrugs. It's kind of a hobby. When I was little, I once tried to name every star in, star in the sky after one of my relatives. The scary part is I hadn't run out of names by the time I fell asleep. Anne is named after a galaxy, Brian says. That's much cooler than being named after a patron saint. I muse. Once, I asked my mom why stars shine. She said they were lights, so the angels could find their way around in heaven. But when I asked my dad, he started talking about gas. And somehow I put it all together and figured that the food God served caused multiple trips to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Brian laughs out loud. And here I was trying to explain atomic fusion to my kids. Did it work? He considers for a moment. They could all probably find the Big Dipper with their eyes closed. That's impressive. Stars all look the same to me. It's not that hard. You spot a piece of a constellation, like Orion's belt, and suddenly it's easier to find Rigel and his foot in Betel... Bet- Bet- Betel... Betelgeuse? Betelgeuse? I'm gonna say Betelgeuse, because I don't know. It just seem- it seems right. It's spelled B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E. And if I re- if I remember right... That's like the official way that Beetlejuice is spelled. Beetlejuice. Uh yeah, that's the way it's spelled. Like official name before the musical and shit. And, like the title made more understandable, but it just being Beetlejuice. But Yeah, Beetlejuice. If I'm if I'm wrong and I'm so sorry, but I'm saying Beetlejuice and I'm not stopping until I'm corrected. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. There we are. And Beetlejuice in his shoulder. He hesitates. But 90% of the universe is made of stuff we can't even see. Then how do you know it's there? He slows to a stop at a red light. Dark? Excuse me? Dark matter has a gravitational effect on other objects. You can't see it, you can't feel it, but you can watch something being pulled in its direction. Ten seconds after Campbell left last night, Izzy walked into the living room where I was just on the cusp of having one of those bone-cleansing cries a woman should treat herself to at least once during a lunar cycle. "'Yeah,' she said dryly. "'I can see this is a totally professional relationship.' I scowled at her. "'Were you eavesdropping?' Pardon me if you and Romeo were having your little tête-à-tête through a thin wall. If you've got something to say, I suggested, say it. Me? Izzy frowned. Hey, it's none of my business, is it? No, it's not. Right, so I'll just keep my opinion to myself. I rolled my eyes. Out with it, Isabel. Thought you'd never ask. She sat down beside me on the couch. You know, Julia, the first time a bug sees that big purple zapper light, it looks like God. The second time, he runs in the other direction. First, don't compare me to a mosquito. Second, he'd fly in the other direction, not run. Third, there is no second time. The bug's dead. Izzy smirked at me. You are such a lawyer. I am not letting Campbell zap me. Then request a transfer. This isn't the Navy. I hugged one of my throw pillows from the couch. And I can't do that. Not now. It'll make him think that I'm such a wimp I can't balance my professional life with some stupid, silly, adolescent incident. You can't. Izzy shook her head. He's an egotistical dickhead who's going to chew you up and spit you out. And you have a really awful history of falling for assholes that you ought to run screaming from. And I don't feel like sitting around listening to you try to convince yourself you don't still feel something for Campbell Alexander when, in fact, you spent the past past 15 years trying to fill in the hole he made inside you. I stared at her. Wow. She shrugged. Guess I had a lot to get off my chest after all. Do you hate all men or just Campbell? Izzy seemed to think about that for a while. Just Campbell, she said finally. What I wanted at that moment was to be alone in my living room so that I could throw things, like the TV remote or the glass vase or preferably my sister. But I couldn't order Izzy out of a house she'd moved into just hours before. I stood up and plucked my house keys off the counter. I'm going out, I told her. Don't wait up. And not much of a party girl, which explains why I hadn't frequented Shakespeare's cat before. Although it was a mere four blocks from my condo. The bar was dark and crowded and smelled of patchouli and cloves. I pushed my way inside, hopped up on a stool, and smiled at the man sitting next to me. I was in the mood to make out in the back row of the movie theater with someone who did not know my first name. I wanted three guys to fight for the honor of buying me a drink. "'I wanted to show Campbell Alexander what he'd been missing. "'The man beside me had sky eyes, a black ponytail, and a Cary Grant grin. "'He nodded politely at me, then turned away and began to kiss a white-haired gentleman flush on the mouth. "'I looked around and saw what I had missed on my entrance. "'The bar was filled with single men, but they were dancing, flirting, hooking up with each other. "'What can I get you?' "'The bartender had fuchsia porcupine hair and an oxen ring pierced through his nose. "'This a gay bar?' "'No, it's the officer's club at West Point. "'You want a drink or not?' "'I pointed over his shoulder to the bottle of tequila, "'and he reached for a shot glass. "'I rummaged in my purse and pulled out a $50 bill, "'the whole thing. "'Glancing down at the bottle, I, pa- I frowned. "'I bet Shakespeare didn't even have a cat. "'Who peed in your coffee?' the bartender asked. "'Narrowing my eyes, I stared at him. "'You're not gay?' "'Sure I am.' Based on my track record, if you were gay, I'd probably find you attractive, as it is. I looked at the busy couple beside me, and then shrugged at the bartender. He blanched, then handed me back my 50. I tucked it back into my wallet, who says you can't buy friends. I murmured. Three hours later, I was the only person still there, unless you counted seven, which was what the bartender had rechristened himself last August after deciding to in, whatever sort of label the name Neil suggested. Seven stood for absolutely nothing, he had told me, which was exactly the way he liked it. Maybe I should be six, I told him, when I'd made my way to the bottom of the tequila bottle, and you could be nine. Seven finished stacking the clean glasses. That's it. You're cut off. He used to call me Jewel, I said, and that was enough to make me start crying. A Jewel is just a rock put under enormous heat and pressure. Extraordinary things are always hiding in places people never think to look. But Camel would look, and then he'd left me, reminding me that whatever he'd seen wasn't worth the time or effort. I used to have pink hair, I told Seven. I used to have a real job, he answered. What happened? He shrugged. I dyed my hair pink. What happened to you? I let mine grow out, I answered. Seven wiped up a spill I'd made without noticing. Nobody ever wants what they've got, he said. Anna sits at the kitchen table by herself, eating a bowl of golden grams. Her eyes widen, as she is surprised to see me with her father, but that's as much as she'll reveal. Fire last night, huh? She says, sniffing. Brian crosses the kitchen and gives her a hug. Big one. The arsonist she asks doubt it he goes for empty buildings and this one had a kid in it who you saved Anna guesses you bet he glances at me I thought I'd take Julia up to the hospital wanna come she looks down at her bowl I don't know hey Ryan lifts her chin no one's going to keep you from seeing Kate no one's going to be too thrilled to see me there either she says. The telephone rings and he picks it up. He listens for a moment and then smiles. That's great. That's so great. Yeah, of course I'm coming in. He hands the phone to Anna. Mom wants to talk to you, he says, and he excuses himself to change clothes. Anna hesitates then curls her hand around the receiver. Her shoulders hunch, a small cubicle of personal privacy. Hello? And then, softly, really? She did? A few moments later, she hangs up. She sits down and takes another spoonful of cereal, then pushes away her bowl. Was that your mom? I ask, sitting down across from her. Yeah, Kate's awake. Anna says, that's good news. I guess. I put my elbows on the table. Why wouldn't it be good news? But Anna doesn't answer my question. She asked where I was. Your mother? Kate. Have you talked to her about your lawsuit, Anna? Ignoring me, she grabs the cereal box and begins to roll down the plastic insert. It's stale, she says. No one ever gets all the air out or closes the top right. Has anyone told Kate what's going on? Anna pushes on the top "'on the box top to get the cardboard tab into its slot, to no avail. "'I don't even like golden grams. "'When she tries again, the box falls out of her arms "'and spills its contents all over the floor. "'Shoot!' "'She crawls under the table, "'trying to scoop up the cereal with her hands. "'I get on the floor with Anna "'and watch her shove fistfuls into the liner. "'She won't look into my direction. "'We can always buy Kay some more when she gets home,' "'I say gently.' Anna stops and glances up. Without the veil of that secret, she looks much younger. Julia, what if she hates me? I tuck a strand of hair behind Anna's ear. What if she doesn't? The bottom line, Seven explained last night, is that we never fall for the people we're supposed to. I glanced at him, intrigued enough to muster the effort to raise my face from where it was plastered on the bar. It's not just me? Hell no he said with- He set down a stack of clean glasses. Think about it. Romeo and Juliet bucked the system, and look where it got them. Superman has the hots for Lois Lane when the better match, of course, would be with Wonder Woman. Dawson and Joey. Need I say more? And don't even get me started on Charlie Brown and the little red-headed girl. What about you? I asked. He shrugged. Like I said, it happens to everyone. Leaning his elbows on the counter, he came close enough for me- He came close enough that I could see the dark roots beneath his magenta magenta hair. For me, it was Lyndon. I'd break up with someone who was named for a tree, too, I sympathized. Guy or girl? He smirked. I'll never tell. So what made her wrong for you? Seven sighed. Well, she- Ha! You said she. He rolled his eyes. Yes, Detective Julia. You've outed me at this gay establishment- Happy? Not particularly. I sent Lyndon back to New Zealand. Green card ran out. It was that or get married. What was wrong with her? Absolutely nothing, Seven confessed. She cleaned like a banshee. She never let me wash a dish. She listened to everything I had to say. She was a hurricane in bed. She was crazy about me, and believe it or not, I was the one for her. It was, like, 98% perfect. What about the other 2%? You tell me. He started stacking the clean glasses on the far side of the bar. Something was missing. I couldn't tell you what it was, if you asked, but it was off. And if you think of a relationship as a living entity, I guess it's one thing if the missing 2% is like a a fingernail, but when it's the heart, that's a whole different ball of wax. He turned to me. I didn't cry when she got on the plane she lived with me for four years and when she walked away i didn't feel much of anything at all well i had the other problem i told him i had the heart of the relationship and no body to grow it in what happened then what else i said it broke The ridiculous irony is that Campbell was attracted to me because I stood apart from everyone else at the Wheeler School, and I was attracted to Campbell because I desperately wanted a connection with someone. There were comments, I knew, and stares sent our way as his friends tried to figure out why Campbell was wasting his time with someone like me. No doubt, they thought I was an easy lay but we weren't doing that. We met after school at the cemetery. Sometimes we would speak poetry to each other. Once we tried to have an entire conversation without the letter S. We sat back to back and tried to think of each other's thoughts, pretending clairvoyance when it only made sense that his whole... That his whole mind would be full of me and mine would be full of him. I loved the way he smelled whenever his head dipped close to hear what I was saying. Like the sun striking the cheek of a, of a tomato or soap drying on the hood of a car. I loved the way his hand felt on my spine. I loved. What if, I said one? I said one night, stealing a breath from the edge of his lips. We did it. He was lying on his back, watching the moon rock back and forth on a hammock of stars. One hand was tossed up over his head. The other anchored me against his chest. Did what? I didn't answer. Just got up on one elbow and kissed him so deep that the ground gave way. Oh, Campbell said, hoarse, That. Have you ever? I asked. He just grinned. I thought that he would probably fucked Muffy or Buffy or Puffy or all three in the baseball dugout at Wheeler. Or after a party at one of their homes when they both still smelled of daddy's bourbon. Rich people being like that. I... Oh my god. Ah. Well. Too late. I said it. I can't take it back now. That's how... This works. Beep, up beep. I wondered why, then, he wasn't trying to sleep with me. I assumed that it was because I wasn't Muffy or Buffy or Puffy, but just Julia Romano, which wasn't good enough. Don't you want to? I asked. It's one of those moments where I knew we were not having the conversation that we needed to be having. And since I didn't really know what to say, never having crossed this particular bridge between thought and deed before, I pressed my hand up against a thick ridge in his pants. He backed away from me. "'Jule,' he said, "'I don't want you to think that's why I'm here. Let me tell you this. If you meet a loner, no matter what they tell you, it's not because they enjoy solitude. It's because they have, t- they have tried to blend into the world before, and people continue to disappoint them. Then why are you here?' "'Because you know all the words to American Pie,' Campbell said. "'Because when you smile, I can almost see that tooth on the side that's crooked,' he stared at me. "'Because you're not like anyone I've ever met.' "'Do you love me?' I whispered. "'Didn't I just say that?' This time, when I reached for the buttons of his jeans, he didn't move away. In my palm, he was so hot I imagined he would leave a scar. Unlike me, he knew what to do. He kissed and slipped, pushed and cracked me wide. Then he went perfectly still.' You didn't say you were a virgin, he said. You didn't ask. But he'd assumed. He shuddered and began to move inside me. A poetry of limbs. I've reached up to hold on to the gravestone behind me. Words I could see in my mind's eye. Nor Dean. B-, B. 1832. D. 1838. Jewel, he whispered when it was over. I thought, I know what you thought. I wondered what happened when you offered yourself to someone and they opened you, only to discover you were not the gift they expected and they had to smile and nod and say thank you all the same. I blame Campbell Alexander entirely for my bad luck with the relationships. It is embarrassing to admit, but I have only had sex with, with three and a half other men, and none of those were any great improvement on my first experience. Let me guess, Seven said last night. The first was a rebound. The second was married. "'How'd you know?' He laughed. "'Because you're a cliché.' I swirled my pinky in my martini. It was an optical illusion, making the finger look split and crooked. The other one was from Club Med, a windsurfing instructor. "'That must have been worthwhile,' Seven said. "'He was absolutely gorgeous,' I answered, "'and had a dick the size of a cocktail frank.' "'Ouch!' "'Actually,', actually i mused, "'You couldn't feel it at all.' Seven grinned. "'So he was the half?' I turned beet red. "'No, that was some other guy. "'I don't know his name,' I admitted. "'I sort of woke up with him on top of me "'after a night like this one. "'You,' Seven pronounced, "'are a train wreck of sexual history. "'But this is inaccurate. "'A runaway train is an accident.' Me? I'll jump in front of the tracks. I'll even tie myself down in front of the speeding engine. Sorry. Just noticed a thing on my book. There's some illogical part of me that still believes if you want Superman to show up, first there's gotta be someone worth saving. Kate Fitzgerald is a ghost just waiting to happen. Her skin is nearly translucent. Her hair is so fair it bleeds into the pillowcase. How are you doing, baby? Brian murmurs, and he leans down to kiss her kiss her on the forehead. "'I think I might have to blow off the Iron Man competition,' Kate jokes. Anna is hovering at the door in front of me. Sarah holds out her hand, it's all the encouragement Anna needs to crawl up on Kate's mattress, and in my mind I mark off the small gesture from mother to child. Then Sarah sees me standing at the threshold. "'Brian,' she says. "'What is she doing here?' I wait for Brian to explain, but he doesn't seem inclined to utter a word, so I paste a smile on my face and step forward. I heard Kate was feeling better today, and I thought it might be a good time to talk to her. Kate struggles to her elbows. Who are you? I expect a fight from Sarah, but it is Anna who speaks up. I don't think it's such a good idea, she says, although she knows this is the very reason I've come here. I mean, Kate's still pretty sick. It takes me a moment, but then I understand. In Anna's life, everyone who ever talks to Kate takes Kate's side. She is doing what she can to keep me from defecting. You know, Anna's right, Sarah hastily adds. Kate's only just turned a corner. I place my hand on Anna's shoulder. Don't worry. Then I turn to her mother. It's my understanding that you wanted this hearing. Sarah cuts me off. Miss Romano, could we have a word outside? We step into the hallway and Sarah waits for a nurse to pass with a styrofoam tray full of needle tray of needles. I know what you think of me, she says. Mrs. Fitzgerald. She shakes her head. You're sticking up for Anna, and you should. I practice law once, and I understand. It's your job, and part of that is figuring out what makes us us. She rubs her forehead with one fist. My job is to take care of my daughters. One of them is extremely ill, and the other one's extremely unhappy. And I may not have it all figured out yet, but I do know that Kate won't get better any quicker if she finds out that the reason you're here is because Anna hasn't withdrawn her lawsuit yet. So I'm asking you not to tell her either. Please. I nod slowly, and Sarah turns to go back into Kate's room. With her hand on the door, she hesitates. I love both of them, she says, an equation I am supposed to be able to solve. I told Seven the bartender that true love is felonious. Not if they're over eighteen, he said, shutting the till of the cash register. By then, the bar itself had become an appendage, a second torso holding up my first. You take someone's breath away. You take someone's breath away, I stressed. You rob them of the ability to utter a single word. I tipped the neck of the empty liquor bottle toward him. You steal a heart. He wiped up in front of me with a dish rag. Any judge would toss that case out on its ass. You'd be surprised. Seven spread the rag on on the brass bar to dry. Sounds like a misdemeanor, if you ask me. I rested my cheek on the cool, damp wood. No way, I said. Once you're in, it's for life. Brian and Sarah take Anna down to the cafeteria. It leaves me alone with Kate, who was eminently curious. I imagine that the number of times her mother has willingly left her side is something she can count on two hands. explain that I'm helping the family make some decisions about her health care. Ethics committee? Kate guesses. Or are you from the hospital's legal department? You look like a lawyer. What does a lawyer look like? Kind of like a doctor, when he doesn't want to tell you what your labs say. I pull up a chair. Well, I'm glad to hear you're doing better today. Yeah, apparently yesterday I was pretty out of it, Kate says, doped up enough to make Ozzy and Sharon look like Ozzy and Harriet. Do you know where you stand, medically, right now? Kate nods. After my BMT, I got graft versus host host disease, which is sort of good because it kicks the leukemia's butt, but it also does some funky stuff to your skin and organs. The doctors gave me steroids and psych cyclosporine, Cyclosporin C Y C L O S P O R I N E to control it. And that worked, but it also managed to break down my kidneys, which is the emergency flavor of the month. That's pretty much the way it goes. Fix one link in the Um, I don't know the pronunciation of this, and if I say it weird, then it sounds like a slur, so I'm just going to spell it and move forward. D-I-K-E. Just in time to watch another one start sprouting. Something is always falling apart in me. She says this matter-of-factly, as if I've grilled her about the weather or what's on the hospital menu. If I could ask her if she has any, if she has talked to the nephrologists about a kidney transplant, if she has any particular feelings about undergoing so many different, painful treatments. But this is exactly what Kate ex- is expecting me to ask, which is probably why the question that comes out of my mouth is completely different. What do you want to be when you grow up? No one ever asks me that. She eyes me carefully. What makes you think I'm going to grow up? What makes you think that you're not? Isn't that why you're doing all this? Just when I think she isn't going to answer me, she speaks. I always wanted to be a ballerina. Her arm goes up, a weak arabesque. You know what ballerinas have? Eating disorders, I think. Absolute control. When it comes to their bodies, they know exactly what's going to happen. And when. When. Kate shrugs, coming back to this moment, this hospital room. "'Anyway,' she says. "'Tell me about your brother.' Kate starts to laugh. "'You haven't had the pleasure of meeting him yet, I guess?' "'Not yet. You can pretty much form an opinion about Jesse in the first 30 seconds you spend with him. He gets into a lot of bad stuff he shouldn't. You mean drugs? Alcohol?' "'Keep going,' Kate says. "'Has that been hard for your family to deal with?' "'Well, yeah.' but I don't really think it's something he does on purpose. It's the way he gets noticed, you know? I mean, imagine what it would be like if you were a squirrel living in the elephant cage at the zoo. Does anyone ever go there and say, hey, check out that squirrel? No, because there's something so much bigger you notice first. Kate runs her fingers up and down one of the tubes sprouting out of her chest. Sometimes it's shoplifting, and sometimes it's getting drunk. Last year, it was an anthrax host hoax. It's the kind of stuff Jesse does. And Anna? Kate starts to pleat the blanket and folds on her lap. There was one year when every single holiday, and I mean even like Memorial Day, I was in the hospital. It wasn't anything planned, of course, but that's the way it happened. We had a tree in my room for Christmas and an Easter egg hunt in the cafeteria, and we trick-or-treated in the orthopedic ward. Anna was around six years old, and she threw a total fit because she couldn't bring sprinklers into the hospital on the 4th of July. on the oxygen t- tents. Kate looks at me. She ran away. Not far or anything. I think she got to the lobby before someone nabbed her. She was going to find herself another family, she told me. Like I said, she was only six, and no one really took it seriously. But I used to wonder what it would be like to be normal, so I totally understand why she'd wonder about it too. When you're not sick, do you and Anna get along pretty well? "'We're like a new pair of sisters, I guess. "'We fight over who gets to put on who CDs. "'We talk about cute guys. "'We steal each other's good nail polish. "'She gets into my stuff and I yell. "'I get into her stuff and she cries down the house. "'Sometimes she's great, "'and other times I wish she'd never been born.' "'That, seems, that sounds so patently famil- familiar that I grin. "'I have a twin sister. "'Every time I used to say that, "'my mother would ask me if I could really, "'truly picture being an only child.' Could you? I laugh. Oh, there are definitely times I could imagine life without her. Kate doesn't crack a smile. See, she says, my sister's the one who's always had to imagine life without me. Ugh, we're on to another Sarah chapter. If you can't tell, I don't really like the mom too much. Because from what I remember, and from what's happened so far, is just so funny focused on kate it's like kate's sick kate needs your kidney kate needs this kate needs that kate 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 and she completely forgets that she has two other kids but oh i love them both equally and they are both so important to me but then the the one is like legit just so upset and going through so much shit And the mom is just like, Kate, 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 Kate. Oh, poor Kate, poor Kate, poor Kate. What the fuck? I, and like from the flashbacks, because like constantly, whenever it's her chapter, we're just going back to her path. We're just going back to Kate getting diagnosed, Kate having a health issue, Kate this, Kate that, Kate, 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 Kate. Kate. I, I can't. It's so shitty. It's so shitty. Sarah, 1996. At eight, Kate is a long tangle of arms and legs, sometimes resembling a creature made of sunlight and pipe cleaners more than she does a little girl. I stick my head into her room for the third time that morning to find her in yet a different outfit. This one is a dress, white with red cherries printed across it. You're going to be late for your own birthday party, I tell her. Thrashing her way out of the halter top, Kate strips off the dress. I I look like an ice cream sundae. There are worse things. There are worse things, I point out. If you were me, would you wear the pink skirt or the striped one? I look at them both, puddles on the floor. The pink one. You don't like the stripes? Then wear that one. I'm going to wear the cherries, she decides, and she turns around to grab it. On the back of her thigh is a bruise the size of a half dollar, a cherry that has stained its way through the fabric. Kate, I ask, what's that? Twisting around, she looks at the spot where I point. I guess I banged it. For five years, Kate has been in remission. At first, when the cord blood transplant seemed to be working, I kept waiting for someone to tell me this was all a mistake. When Kate complained that her feet hurt, I rushed her to Dr. Chance, certain this was the bony pain of recurrence, only to find out that she had outgrown her sneakers. When she fell down, instead of kissing her scrapes, I'd ask her if her platelets were good. A bruise is created when there is bleeding in tissues beneath the skin, usually, but not always, the result of a trauma. It's been five whole years. Did I mention that? Anna sticks her head into the room. Dad says the first car just pulled up, and if Kate wants to come down wearing a flower sack, he doesn't care. What's a flower sack? Kate finishes hiking the sundress over her head, then pulls, pulls up the hem and rubs the bruise rubs the bruise. Huh. "'She says, "'Downstairs there are 25 second-graders, "'a cake in the shape of a unicorn, "'and a local college kid hired to make swords and bears "'and crowns out of balloons. "'Kate opens her presents, "'necklaces made of glittery beads, "'craft kits, Barbie paraphernalia. "'She saves the biggest box for last, "'the one Brian and I have gotten her. "'Inside a glass bowl swims a fantail goldfish.' Kate has wanted a pet forever, but Brian is allergic to cats, and dogs require a lot of attention, which led us to this. Kate could not be happier. She carries him around for the rest of the party. She names him Hercules. After the party, when we were when we were cleaning up, I find myself staring at the goldfish. Bright as a penny, he swims in circles, happy to be going nowhere. It takes only 30 seconds to realize that you will be canceling all your plans, erasing whatever you c- had been cocky enough to schedule on your calendar. It takes 60 seconds to understand that even if you've been fooled into thinking so, you do not have an ordinary life. A routine bone marrow aspiration, one we'd scheduled long before I even I ever saw that bruise, has come back with some ab- abnormal pro- flight floating around. Then a polymerase chain chain reaction test, one that allows the study of DNA, showed that in Kate, the 15 and 17 chromosomes were translocated. All of this means that Kate is in molecular relapse now, and clinical symptoms can't be that far behind. Maybe she won't present with blasts for a month. Maybe we won't find blood blood in her urine or stools for a year, but inevitably, it will happen. They say that word, relapse, Like they might say birthday or tax deadline, something that happens so routinely as it has become part of your internal calendar, whether you want it to or not. Dr. Chance has explained that this is one of the great debates for oncologists. Do you fix a wheel that isn't broken or do you wait until the cart collapses? He recommends that we put Kate on all trans reninoic Retino- acid. It comes in a pill half the size of my thumb. It was basically stolen from ancient Chinese medics who'd been using it for years. Unlike chemotherapies, which go in and kill everything in their path, Atra has right, f- has right for the chromosomes 17. Since the translocation of chromosomes 15 and 17 is in part what keeps promilocy mat- maturation from happening correctly, Atra keeps on. Un- Atra helps uncoil the genes that have bound themselves together and stops the abnormalities from going further. Dr. Chan says the Atra may, may put Kate back into remission. Then again, she might develop a resistance to it. Mom, Jessie comes into the living room, where I am sitting on the couch. I've been there for hours now. I can't seem to make myself get up and do any of the things I am supposed to do, because what is the point of packing school lunches or having a pair of pants or even paying the heating bill? "'Mom,' Jesse says again, "'you didn't forget, did you?' "'And look at him as if he is speaking Greek.' "'What? You said you'd take me to buy new cleats after we go to the orthodontist.' "'You promised.' "'Yes, I did, because soccer starts two days from now, and Jesse's outgrown his old pair.' But now I do not know if I can drag myself to the orthodontist, where the spe- receptionist will smile at Kate and tell me, like she always does, how beautiful my children are. And there is something about the thought of going to sports authority that seems downright obscene. Cool, he smiles, his silver mouth glinting. Can we just go get, new- get the cleats? Now was not a good time. But, Jessie, let it go. I can't play if I don't get new shoes, and you're not even doing anything. You're just sitting here. Your sister, I say evenly, is incredibly sick. I'm sorry if that interferes with your dentist appointment or your plan to go buy a pair of cleats, but those don't rate quite as high in the grand scheme of things right now. I think that since you're ten, you might be able to grow up enough to realize that the, world, that the whole world doesn't always re- revolve around you. Jesse looks out the window where Kate straddles the arm of an oak tree, coaching Anna in how to climb it. "Climb up," yeah, right. She's sick. He says, "Why don't you grow up? Why don't you figure out that the whole world that the world doesn't revolve around her?" For the first time in my life, I begin to understand how a parent might hit a child. It's because you can look into their eyes and see a reflection of yourself that you wish you hadn't. Jesse runs upstairs to slam the door to his bedroom. I f***ing hate Sarah! Christ on my dick. And yeah, that's a thing I say. You can't judge me. I started saying it accidentally because in Hell of Boston Boss they say Christ on a stick over this one child who was being a complete dickweed. And then I accidentally twisted it into Christ on my dick in my brain. So now that's what I say. No one can stop me. Mm. Where am I? I close my eyes, take a few deep breaths, and it strikes me. Not everybody dies of old age. People get run over by cars. People crash in airplanes. People choke on peanuts. There are no guarantees about anything. Least of all, one's future. With a sigh, I walk upstairs. Knock on my son's door. He has just recently discovered music. It throbs through through the thin line of light at the base of the door. As Jesse turns down the stereo, the notes flatten abruptly. What? I'd like to talk to you. I'd like to apologize. There's a scuffle on the other side of the door and then it swings open. Blood covers Jesse's mouth. The vampire's lipstick. Bits of wire stick out like a seamstress's pins. I notice the fork he is hold he is holding and realize this is what he has used to pull off his braces. "Now you never have to take me anywhere," he says. Two weeks go by with Kate on Atra. Did you know, Jessie says, one day, while I am getting her pill ready, a giant tortoise can live for 177 years. He is on a Ripley's believe it or not kick. An arctic clam can can live for 220 years. Anna sits at the counter, eating peanut butter with a spoon. What's an arctic clam? Who cares, Jessie says. A parrot can live for 80 years. A cat can live for 30 How about Hercules? Kate says. It says in my book that with good care a goldfish can live for seven years. Jessie watches Kate put the pill on her tongue. Take a swig of water to swallow it. (sighs) If you were Hercules, he says, you'd already be dead. Brandon and I slide into our respective chairs in Dr. Chance's office. Five years have passed, but the seats fit like an old, like an old baseball glove. Even the photographs on the oncologist's desk have, no, desk have not changed. His wife is wearing the same broad-brimmed hat on a rocky Newport jetty. His son is frozen at age six, holding a speckled trout, contributing to the feeling that, in spite of what I believed, we never really left here. Theatre worked. For a month, Kate reverted to, re- to molecular remission. And then a CBC turned up more promyelokites in her blood. We can keep pulsing her with Atra, Dr. Chance says, but I think that his failure already tells us she's maxed out that course. What about a bone marrow transplant? That's a risky call, particularly particularly for a child who still isn't showing symptoms of full-blown clinical relapse, Dr. Chance looks at us. There's something else we can try first. It's called a donor lymphocyte infusion, a DLI. Sometimes a transfusion of white blood cells from a matched donor can help the original clone of cord blood cells fight the leukemia cells. Think of Nam as a relief army, supporting the front line. Will it put her into remission? Brian asks. Dr. Chance shakes his head. It's a stopgap measure. Kate will, in all probability, have a full-fledged relapse, but it buys time to build up her defenses before we have to rush into a more aggressive treatment. And how long will it take to get the lymphocytes here? I ask. Dr. Chance turns to me. That depends. How soon can you bring in Anna? When the elevator door opens... When the elevator doors open, there is only there's only one other person inside it a homeless man with electric blue sunglasses and six plastic grocery b- bags filled with rags. Close the doors, damn it! He yells as soon as we step inside. Can't you see I'm blind? I push the button for the lobby. I can take Anna in after school. Kindergarten gets out at noon tomorrow. Don't touch my bag, the homeless man growls. I didn't, I answer, distant and polite. I don't think you should, Brian says. I'm nowhere near him. Sarah, I meant the DLI. I don't think you should take Anna in to donate blood. For no reason at all, the elevator stops on the 11th floor, then closes again. The homeless man begins to rummage in his plastic bags. When we had Anna, I remind remind Brian, we knew that she was going to be a donor for Kate. Once, and she doesn't have any memory of us doing that to her. I wait until she looks at me. Would you give blood for Kate? Jesus, Sarah, what kind of question? I would too. I'd give her half my heart for God's sake, if it helped. (coughs) Sorry for not pausing the recording. You do whatever you have to when it comes to people you love right? Brian ducks his head. I'm back. I just had a moment. Uh, uh, (sighs) Brian ducks his head. Nods. What makes you think that Anna would feel any different? The elevator doors open, but Brian and I remain inside, staring at each other. From the back, the homeless man shoves between us, his bounty rustling in his arms. Stop yelling, he shouts, so that we stand in utter silence. Can't you tell that I'm deaf? To Anna, it is a holiday. Her mother and father are spending time with her, alone. She gets to hold both of our hands the whole way across the parking lot. So what if we're going to a hospital? I have explained to her that that Kate isn't feeling good. And that the doctors need to take something from Anna and give it to Kate to make her feel better. I figured that was more than enough information. We went in the examination room, coloring line drawings of pterodactyls and T-Rexes. Today at snack, Ethan said that the, that the dinosaurs all died because they got a cold, Anna says. But no one believed him. Brian grins. Why do you think they died? Because, duh, they were a million years old. She looks up at him. Did they have birthday parties back then? The door opens, and the hematologist comes in. Hello, gang. Mom, you want to hold her, in, hold her on your lap? So I crawl onto the table and settle Anna in my arms. Brian gets stationed behind us so that he can grab Anna's shoulder and elbow and keep it mo- immobilized. You ready? The doctor asks Anna, who is still smiling. And then she holds up a syringe. It's only a little stick, the doctor promises. Exactly the wrong words, and Anna starts thrashing. Her arms clip me in the face, the belly. Brian cannot grab hold of her. Over her screams, he yells at me. I thought you told her! The doctor, who's left the room without me even noticing... Even noticing, even noticing, even noticing. There we are. Returns with several nurses in tow. Kids and phlebotomy, phlebotomy never mix well, she says, as the nurses slide Anna off my lap and soothe her with, the, with their soft hands and softer words. Don't worry, we're pros. It was deja vu, just like the day Anna was diagnosed. Be careful what you wish for, I think. Anna is just like her sister. I'm vacuuming the girl's room when the handle of the elect- Electrolux black's... Smacks Hercules' bowl. I don't know. That. The Amazon little buddy. Just just thought I was talking to her. Not saying the name, because, you know. I'm vacuuming the girl's room when the handle of the electrolux, electrolux... Good, she didn't get confused again. Smacks Hercules' bowl and sends the fish flying. No glass breaks, but it takes me a moment to find him, thrashing himself dry on the carpet beneath Kate's desk. Hang on, buddy, I whisper, and I flip him into the bowl. I fill it with water from the bathroom sink. He flows to the top. Don't, I think. Please. I sit down on the edge of the bed. How can I possibly tell Kate I've killed her fish? Will she notice if I run to the pet store and get a replacement? Suddenly, Anna is next to me, home from morning kindergarten. Mom? How come Hercules isn't moving? I open my mouth, confession melting on my tongue. But at that moment, the goldfish shudders sideways, dives, and starts to swim again. There, I say. He's fine. When 5,000 lymphocytes don't seem to be enough, Dr. Chance calls for 10,000. Calls for 10,000. Anna's appointment for a second donor lymphocyte draw falls in the middle of the gymnastics party Gymnastics birthday party of a girl in her class. I I agree to let her go for a little while, and then drive to the hospital from the gym. The girl is a sugar-spun princess with fairy white hair, a tiny replica of her mother. As I slip off my shoes to trek across the padded floor, I try desperately to remember their names. The child is... Mallory. The child is Mallory. And the mother is... Monica? Margaret? I spot Anna... I spot Anna right away, sitting on the trampoline as an instructor bounces them up and down like popcorn. The mother comes over to me. A smile strung on her face like a row of Christmas lights. You must be Anna's mom. I'm Mitty, she says. I'm so sorry she has to leave, but of course we understand. It must be amazing going somewhere no one else ever gets to go. The hospital? Well, just hope you never have to do the same. Oh, I know. I get dizzy going up an elevator. She turns to the trampoline. Anna, honey, your mother's here. Anna barrels across the padded floor. This is exactly what I'd wanted to do to my living room when the kids were all small, Cushion the walls and ceiling and floor and ceiling for protection. And yet it turned out that I could have rolled Kate in bubble wrap. The danger. And yet it turns out that I could have rolled Kate in bubble wrap. The danger for her was already under the s- under her skin. "'Oh!' "'Oh?' "'I'm confused, but whatever. "'What do you say?' "'I prompt, and Anna thinks Mallory's mother. "'Oh, you're welcome,' she hands Anna a small bag of treats. "'Now have your husband call us any time. "'We'd be happy to take Anna while you're in Texas.' "'Anna hesitates in the middle of a shoelace knot. Mitty, I ask. "'What exactly did Anna tell you?' That she had to leave early so your whole family could, t- could take you to the airport. Because once training starts in Houston, you won't see them until after the flight. The flight? On the space shuttle? For a moment I am stunned that Anna would make up such a ridiculous story that this, that this woman would believe it. I'm not an astronaut, I confess. I don't know why Anna would even say something like that. I pull Anna to her feet, once she lay still untied, dragging her out of the gymnasium. We reach the car before I say a word. Why did you lie to her? Anna scowls. Why did I have to leave the party? Because your sister is more important than cake and ice cream. Because I cannot do this for her. Because I said so. I'm so angry that I have to try twice before I can unlock the van. Stop acting like a five-year-old, I accuse. And then I remember that's exactly what she is. It was so hot, Brian says. The silver tea set melted. Pencils were bent in half. And look up from the newspaper. How did it start? Cat and... Screen just dimmed. Cat and dog chasing each other when the owners were on vacation. They turned on a gen Air range. He peels his jeans down. Winces. I got second degree burns just kneeling on the roof. His skin is raw. Blistered. I watch him apply Neosporin and gauze. He keeps talking, telling me something about a rookie nickname, Nicknamed Caesar, who just joined their company. But my eyes are drawn to the advice column in the newspaper. Dear Abby, every time my mother-in-law visits, she insists on cleaning out the refrigerator. My husband says she's just trying to help, but it makes me feel like I'm being judged. She's made my life a wreck. How do I make this woman stop without ruining my marriage? Sincerely, past my expiration date, Seattle. What sort of woman considers this to be her biggest problem? I picture her scrolling out a note to Dear Abby on linen, blend, on linen blend stationery. I wonder if she's ever felt a baby turn inside her, tiny hands and feet walking in slow circles, as if the inside of a mother is a place to be carefully mapped. What are you glued to? Brian asks, con- coming to read the column to- over my shoulder. I shake my head in disbelief. A woman whose life is being ruined by rings from jelly jars, cream gone bad. Brian adds, chuckling, slimy lettuce. Oh my God! How can she stand to be alive? We both start laughing then, contagious. All we have to do is look at each other to laugh even harder. And then, just as suddenly as all this was funny, it isn't anymore. Not all of us live in a world where our refrigerator contents are the barometer for our personal happiness. Some of us work in buildings that are burning down around us. Some of us have little girls who are dying. Slimy fucking lettuce, I say, my voice hitching. It's not fair. Brian is across the room in an instant. He folds me into his embrace. It never is, baby, he answers. One month later, we go back for a third. That was a door one month. We go back for a third lymphocyte donation. Anna and I take our seats in the doctor's office, waiting to be called. After a few minutes, she tugs on my sleeve. Mom, she says. I glance down at her. Anna is swinging her feet on her fingernails. Is swinging her feet. On her fingernails is Kate's mood-changing nail polish. What? She smiles up at me. In case I forget to tell you after, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. One day, my one day, my sister arrives unannounced, and with Brian's permission, spirits me away to a penthouse suite suite at the Ritz-Carlton in Boston. We can do anything you want, she tells me. Art museum, Freedom Trail walks, dinners out on the harbor. But I, but what I really want to do is just forget. And so, three hours later, I am sitting on the floor beside her, finishing our second second one hundred dollar bottle of wine. I lift the bottle by its neck. I could have bought a dress with this. Zan snorts. Athelene's basement, maybe. Her feet are on a bro, on a brocade chair. Her body, her body is sprawled on the white carpet. On the TV, Oprah counsels us to minimize our lives. Plus, when you zip up a great Pinot noir, you never look fat. I look over at her, suddenly feeling sorry for myself. No, you're not doing the crying thing. Crying is not included in the room rate. Right? Suddenly all I can think of is how stupid the women on on Oprah sound, with their stuffed filofaxes and crammed closets. I wonder what Brian made for dinner, if Kate's all right. I'm going to call home. She comes up on an elbow. You are allowed to take a break now. No one has to be a martyr 24-7. But I hear her wrong. I think once you sign on to be a mother, that's the only shift they offer. I said martyr, Zan laughs. Not mother. I smile a little. Is there a difference? She takes the telephone receiver out of my hand. Did you did you want to get your crown of thorns out of the suitcase first? Listen to yourself, Sarah, and stop being such a drama queen. Yes, you drew a bad lot of fate. Yes, it sucks to be you. Bright color rises on my cheeks. You have no idea what my life is like. Neither do you, Zan says. You're not living, Sarah. You're waiting for, Kat to, for Kate to die. I am not, I begin, but then I stop. The thing is, I am. Sand strokes my hair and lets me cry. It's so hard sometimes, I confess. Words I have not said to anyone, not even Brian. As long as it's not all the time, Sam says. Honey, Kate is not going to die sooner because you have one more glass of wine. Or because you stay overnight in a hotel. Or because you let yourself crack up at a bad joke. So sit your ass back down and turn up the volume and act like a normal person. I look around at the opulence of the room, at our decadent sprawl of wine bottles and chocolate strawberries. Sam, I say, wiping my eyes. This is not what normal people do. She follows my gaze. You're absolutely right. She picks up the remote control, flipping channels until she finds Jerry Springer. That better? I start to laugh, and then she starts to laugh, and soon the room is spinning around me and we are lying on our backs, staring up at the crown molding edging the ceiling. I suddenly remember how, when we were kids, Zan used to always walk ahead of me to the bus stop. I could have run and caught up, but I never did. I only wanted to follow her. Laughter rises like steam, swims through the windows. After three days of a torrential downpour, the kids are delighted to be outside, kicking around a soccer ball with Brian. When life is normal, it is so normal. I duck into Jesse's room, trying to navigate strewn Lego pieces and comic books so that I can set his clean clothes down on the bed. Then I go into Kate and Anna's room and separate their folded laundry. When I place Kate's t-shirts on her dresser, I see it. Hercules is swimming upside down. I reach into the bowl and turn him, holding his tail. He waps for a few strokes and then floats slowly to the surface, white-bellied and gasping. I remember Jessie saying that with good care a fish might live 7 years. This has only been 7 months. After carrying the fish bowl into my bedroom, I pick up the phone and dial information, Petco, I say. When I'm connected, I ask a clerk about Hercules. Do you like want to save want to buy a new fish, she asks? No, I want to save this one. Ma'am, the girl says, we're talking about a goldfish, right? so I call three vets, none of whom treat fish. I watch Hercules in his death throes for another minute, then ring the oceanography department at URI, asking for any professor that's available. Dr. Orestes studies tide pools, he tells me, mollusks and shellfish and sea urchins, not goldfish. But I find myself telling him about my daughter, who has APL, about Hercules, who survived once against all odds. The marine biologist is silent for a moment. Have you changed his water? This morning. You get a lot of rain down there the past couple days? Yes. Got a well? What does that have to do with anything? Yes. It's just a hunch, but with runoff, your water might have too many minerals in it. Fill the bowl with bottled water, and maybe he'll perk up. So I empty out Hercules' bowl. Scrub it, and add a half gallon of pool and spring. It takes 20 minutes, but then Hercules begins to swim around. He navigates between the lobes of the fake plants. He nibbles up food. Kate finds me watching him a half hour later. You didn't have to change the water. I did it this morning. Oh, I didn't know. She presses her face up against the bowl. Her smile magnified. Jesse says goldfish can only pay attention for nine seconds, Kate says. But I think Hercules knows exactly who I am. I touch her hair and wonder if I have used up my miracle. And I'm caught up. I ended with one of the prospective channel chapter things. Um, not sure how long I've been recording, but I think it's been over three hours total for this episode. Right. Yeah, over three hours. If anyone wants to do math and tell me how long this was. Oh wait, no no no. I'll figure it out myself. No, I don't need I don't need anyone doing math. Don't do math. Don't waste your time. It's just like the recording thing I have doesn't tell me in like hours and minutes, so like it just tells me like the minutes. So I'm at two hundred and thirty three minutes right now. According to the site that I use to record. But that's not like the hours and minutes. And I don't want to do math. So, like, hey, eh. But, um, yeah. Thanks for tuning in. I still have to record that episode in advance for f- Saturday. But that'll post on Saturday. So, I don't know why I'm talking to you about it so much. But, bye bye Thanks for listening. Um, Bye again soon. Uh, I hate myself. <laughs>